How's everybody? Wasn't that a great meeting last night? Boy. And you guys did a great job, those of you that were leading worship. I thought Johnny gave a killer message, very, got into the word a little bit in Ephesians. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And uh, I love when he got to that verse that said, uh, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So those were the two main verses. But he got to the predestination part. He says, let's just don't get hung up on the sovereignty stuff. <laughs> Put it in its place and move on. It was really good. Yeah, just some people get all hung up on that stuff. And I just say, you know, if I get to heaven and find out God predestined everything, I'm still going to worship him, you know. Because he's the one that's calling the shots, not me. Here's my... Oh, that's my y, cheap YWAM Bible. But I got a really good uh, other Bible here, if I can see it. Where did that thing go? Yeah, this is my goatskin Bible. Isn't that cool? It's shiny. And I put, I put, I put leather, leather uh, renewal on it all the time. I don't even mark that one. I, I mark my other Bibles, but that's why well, I marked it a little bit. Well, you saw my other Bible. It's all full of highlighters, you know. It's almost every, everything is. But I got that for a really good, uh, for a really good price. Yeah, you can turn, you can pass it around. If, if you touch it, just like touching the hem of Jesus' garment, anointing directly goes through you if you, if you just touch it. Yeah. It just, bzz, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I think I finally got your names down. Uh, now that we're in the last week, but uh, okay, we're going to wrap it up today, and um, uh, I, I uh, want to um, give you what what not only I think you need, but what you feel you need. So, um, Sam thought I should do a little bit more on really practical spiritual disciplines, making time for getting into the Word talking more about the disciplines of your Bible life and stuff. So we'll do that, and I'm going to jump off of my book reviews that I started on yesterday, which will help me jump into a couple of areas that I, I won't teach on today, but I will suggest to you to get into them uh, when we get there. Um, but let me make a couple of announcements. On my books, they're just whatever you can afford to drop in the bag. If you can't afford anything, you take them for free. That's fine with me. But the prayer diaries, I need to get $6 a piece out of them because that directly comes out of my pocket. So, uh, well, the other comes out of my pocket too, but I can afford, I can afford, I have, I, I have deeper pockets where my books are concerned. So, um, but if you absolutely would want a prayer diary or any of the books and you just don't have the money, just take whatever you want. And, uh, but just keep in mind, it would be nice to get the money on the, on the prayer diaries. You don't have to beg me for anything. You don't have to promise me nothing. Just come up during the break. Take what you think would bless you, and you can have it. Another thing I can do is if you have supporters and you want to send a prayer diary or a book, I'd be happy to sign it, and maybe that will somehow bless them. It's getting around Christmas time, so it's a good time to be able to bless your supporters. That's why I bought 1,000 prayer diaries, because I wanted to uh, spread the wealth. I, in fact, I'd like to sell 1,000 and get another 1,000 to get more and more people out there. The one thing about the prayer diaries that's good with, with one of your disciplines is the area, and I talked about this the other day, of just trying to read through the Bible in a year. I mean, that, that's a real basic discipline. 
but according to our surveys on this campus, about 75% of our DTS students have never read through the whole Bible. And so that's why we started the DBS. And so uh, I would think as a worship leader, you're just going to get that much more. I think when you're writing songs and when uh, also when you're worshiping songs, you, you can only transmit what you are. And um, it was an interesting thing. Uh, um, we had a, a, a very well-known missions recruiter, preacher, challenger type of guy uh, back in the day. And uh, I, I had really, uh, he was one of these guys that I promoted him everywhere. And, and uh, I, I told all the younger guys, man, you really need to listen to this guy. He's been a mentor to me. And um, um, anyway, then, then unbeknownst to us, uh, he left Hawaii and he was out there somewhere else in the world and called me and came through Hawaii and was teaching. So I called up from, I don't know where I was, but I said, oh, get this guy in and whatever you got to do, flatten the schedule, wipe it out and let this guy come and teach. And so he did. And the younger guys pulled me aside later on and said, Danny, really appreciate your endorsement of this guy but he was just totally hollow it was like it was like there was nothing there it was like an empty eggshell I said really found out later he was full-on backslidden at the time and he just came to Honolulu because he knew he could get on honorarium from us and he was just totally deceiving us now he has since repented of that and it's all under the blood and it's all done but it, it showed me that the Holy Spirit is not dumb and the Holy Spirit in your people will be able to discern whether you've got a real anointing from God or not. Now, it is true, according to Romans 11, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, or they are, they are um, un, what's, what's uh, gifts and calling of God are unchangeable, or they're irrevocable. So God can use a person who's living in sin, and if God feels like it, he can still use that person's gift, because he loves the people that the person is ministering to. This is one of the answers to the question of, uh, like, I have a friend who was a worship leader in the Jesus movement. Uh, he was one of, your, your parents would all know his name, most of you. Uh, and um, and he, he went through a time where he started drinking, and then he was actually drinking while he was ministering. And, of course, he would, he would, um, he would um, disguise it with breath mints and all that kind of stuff. But he'd, he'd be full-on half-drunk when he was leading worship. And, but he did it just because that was the only way he could make money. And then, um, I might as well tell you this side of the story, too. It was interesting. There were some little nuns in this little rescue mission in Los Angeles that were doing this you know, thing for the homeless. And this guy had an agent that, that you know, set up his schedule. And according to the what they call a rider, you know, some, when you really advance in the world and you really make it, you get to make a rider, you know, and that means you can demand that you have a certain color of M&Ms in your hotel room, which must be a five-star hotel, by the way, because I am so high and mighty and spiritual that you should give me all this money because I am so worthy, because I am so anointed. And um, anyway, this guy had a rider that said he had to have, he had $1,500 guaranteed. And then the rest of the money would go towards this orphanage, homeless thing these, these nuns were doing. And for whatever reason, hardly anybody showed up for the concert, and so they, they didn't even get $200 in the offering. And uh, so the nuns, not only did they not make any money for their orphanage, they didn't have any money even to pay the singer. And my friend, who was drunk at the time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
He's waiting for his money, and his agent is there, and these poor little nuns are saying, we just don't have the money. And the agent said, well, you better come up with the money, and he threatened them with legal action because they didn't have the money because you signed a contract. And that broke my friend's heart, and even while he was drunk, he turned around and repented. He went to an alcohol rehab program. He got off of alcohol, and today he's walking with the Lord, doing really strong. God has restored his marriage. But after all this happened, he told me, he said, Danny, God's people are so naive, I could, I could do anything. I could say anything, and I could fool them. You know? but, and it's true. As Abraham Lincoln, one of our great presidents, once said, you can fool some of the people all the time, and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And, uh, some, and especially people that have spiritual discernment. So all of that to say this. When I start talking today about um, your, hol- your, your life of holiness, your fear of the Lord, your walking with God. And I'm not saying you guys are leveled above anybody else. But if you're called to be a worship leader, uh, we, we, we should expect you to be walking strong with Jesus. You know, I mean, we, we should have that presumption. That you're not dealing with major macro sin in your life. And if you are having macro sin problems, please go and get some help. If you can't get it directly from God, then get some counseling or get some therapy or get whatever you need. But I tell you, eventually you will crash and burn. And eventually it's going to happen. And you might fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time. But, it, but you're never going to fool God. And there needs to be a good level of the fear of the Lord. And it tells us that in the book of James about teachers. You know, but a worship leader is kind of like a teacher, right? You're teaching people how to worship God by your actions. And sometimes in between songs, you might give some exhortations. But even if you're just worshiping in song and you're not teaching, you're still teaching. And it says in James chapter 1, don't be quick to want to be a teacher because teachers incur a stricter judgment. And, and if I'm up here talking about, you know, discipline or evangelism or whatever I'm talking about, the fear of the Lord should be on me that I'm living this, you know. And uh, uh, when we get to our five areas of Bible discipline, I will freely confess I'm not a good meditator. Uh, I'm I'm pretty good memorizer. I've got a lot of scripture memorized. I read the Bible a lot. And so the other disciplines are pretty good. But I got to tell you, I don't have a lot of authority besides just telling you that's what the Bible says because I'm not really living it that much. But I freely admit that, and I'm not all condemned over it. I just have this hyperactive personality, and I'm a type A. And it's really hard for me to slow down and just meditate. It takes an extreme amount of self-control with me because I'm just, oh, it is very difficult sometimes. (laughs) So, So it's okay. You know, we all got our weaknesses. But... Don't let those weaknesses be hardcore sins. You know, you want to be you want to be walking strong with the Lord. You want to be, you know, you want to be able to uh, take it to the bank, so to speak. Okay. Um, so uh, the break time will be the time when we'll you come up and get your books or whatever else you need. Um, any questions from yesterday? Any insights from yesterday? What did you learn yesterday? We got into some deep stuff in the first half. Any questions?
How about my whole thing on Vishal Mangawadi's book? Did you understand what I was trying to say from that? That this is a book that transforms nations, even nations that followed it years ago like we do. Uh, uh, I should say, like we used to in America, like we, we have in the past in Norway and in other quote-unquote Christian countries. But we've kind of fallen away from that. I was just watching the news this morning, and uh, the Congress of the United States is going to sue President Obama for a couple of things. But one of the things is, as I said the other day, we set up our government with three separate mutually accountable structures of judges, the president, and the Congress so they can, um, uh, you know, check and balance one another. And President Obama says, no, I, I can do it on my own. So he has just announced, and he can, he's, he's found a way where he's just granting immunity to millions of uh, illegal immigrants in our country. Now, I know it's a, it's, it's a difficult problem, and there's a lot of Christians in Arizona uh, that say it's not so clear-cut as sending everybody home, that there's, there's got a mercy to the widows and the orphans and the poor and if they go home, they'll be under the control of drug cartels, and they'll be, uh, you know, it'll be bad. But still, you have them in the country illegally. So what do you do? So I, I'm not saying it's not an easy issue. I'm not saying it's an easy issue. But I am saying what President Obama did was he just, he just flaunted the law. He said, I'm the president, and I can do it. And has, in effect, become a dictator. So uh, our Congress is suing him now, and it's really ugly, and I'm, I'm not even – trying to get you to be anti-Obama. I'm not. I'm just simply saying structures and these kinds of things are meant to protect the people. Laws should be good for people. The reason you can't do something is because if we let you do that, people are going to get hurt. So you have, like right now, this is another big American news item. There was a police officer who shot a young guy in a place called Ferguson, Missouri a couple of uh, months ago. And it's looked, at least in the eyes of the African-American community, it really looks like a racial, racially motivated crime, not to mention the fact it looks like the guy just opened fire and shot this boy several times, and he, the, the boy was just standing there. So I wasn't there, so I'm not making a judgment on it, but I'm just saying that the reason the African-American community is so upset, and you've got you to gotta understand this, is because there, it's, it's the injustice thing. And injustice causes anger, right? I don't know if I said this to you the other day, but the last time you got angry, you got angry because you thought somebody did an injustice to you. And, and you know what? God put that in you. That's part of the image of God. God gets angry at injustice. That's why he says, uh, you know, such, such radical consequences to breaking the law in the Old Testament. There are 17 capital crimes in the Old Testament, which means if you do these things, an eye for an eye, a life for a life, and a tooth for a tooth. A life for a life. If you blatantly go out and kill somebody, you should be killed according to the law. And God wrote that law. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to advocate a position on capital punishment, but I am saying that in the Old Testament, in the Jewish law, God said, if you go out and knock somebody's tooth out, we're going to knock your tooth out. And if you uh, pluck somebody's eye out, and you be brought up before the judge, the judge is going to say, well, the law says an eye for an eye, so let's go pluck your eye out. And that was what's called retributive justice. You get what you deserve. And that's justice. Justice is you get what you deserve. Charles Finney was a famous American evangelist, and he said law without consequences is just good advice. 
like uh, we have a situation on our base right now. In the year 2010, we celebrated our 50th anniversary. And um, God spoke to the leaders of the base. We had $250,000 of outstanding debt from our staff. And I don't know if your school has had the, the axe come down from Peter Harris, but usually Peter Harris is the bad guy. And he comes into the schools and says, if you don't have your, your is, is something like that happened in your school yet? You were good, okay. But if you're, a lot of the DTSs, you know, you got 10 or 12 people that don't have any money. And Peter Harris comes in and says, the law says we're going to cut you loose after a month. And everybody scrambles. And usually everybody makes it. But what we did, so we do that with the students. But we were unjust to our staff. So what we did, we wiped out. I mean, there's a reason we built up the quarter of a million dollars in debt. It was because we didn't enforce the law. But we wiped it out. We forgave everybody. That was only, well, that was almost four years ago. Now, we're over $300,000 in debt again. And you know what it says that we did? We went and said, okay, we got in debt before, but we're going to get, you need to pay your tuition. And yet we have some of our staff that owes $5,000 or more to the base. I'm not knocking them. I mean, I'm, I, w I have gone through my poverty skids in YWAM myself, so I'm not knocking, but I'm just saying that law without consequences is mere advice. And if we say, after three months, if you still owe money to the base, you've got to get a job or you've got to do something to bring more money into the base. And I'm not a, I don't like law. I don't like consequences. But the nature of the way we are, if we don't see that there's consequences to breaking the law, we'll probably not break it. A lot of us born-again Christians will drive 70 miles an hour down the highway going to Waikoloa if we know a cop is not going to get us. But if we fear that there might be radar-enforced speed limits, we'll slow down. And it just goes to show us we live under the law and not under grace. So grace says you're led by the Holy Spirit and you go by the law because it's the right thing to do. So the point is, is that uh, uh, we don't want to try to just... Um, um, we don't want to make grace some kind of an excuse to do what we want to do. We want to have what grace does is grace teaches us to obey God. See, it, it, it teaches us to obey God. Like I've given this illustration before to other schools, so you might have heard me. But in the area of alcohol, uh, if you study the Bible, you, you just can't get around the fact that it's okay to drink. It is. Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine. In the Old Testament, it says... Drink your wine with a merry heart. There's even a verse in the Old Testament that says, um, uh, drink strong drink, uh, you know, and have a good time and celebrate. You know, there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. Jesus turned the water into wine, and some people say, well, it was just grape juice in those days. Well, it might have been a little watered down, but it still had alcoholic content. Obviously, why would the Bible say don't get drunk with wine if you couldn't get drunk with it? I mean, it's common sense. Um, but, so I know that theologically. So the law tells me, the, the law says, it's okay for you to drink. But in my case, and this is just me, in my relationship with the Lord, the discipline the Lord has given me is that I can't drink at all. There's a couple reasons for it. One, I have an addictive personality. Number two, I had a problem with drugs in the past. And to tell you the truth between us girls, wink, wink, I still like the feeling that drugs give me. That's why I don't do them. And I still like the feeling that alcohol gives me. That's why the Lord has told me not to drink alcohol. And if you are a libertarian in the area of alcohol, I just want to suggest 
You better have the fear of the Lord on you that when that buzz starts to come, you back off. Because what happens is you begin to trust yourself a little too much. And many people who get in drunk driving accidents are people who trust themselves too much. And your judgment is messed up and so forth. And many of us have had friends killed in drunk driving accidents. And so I don't have to get up on that. But getting back to my situation, um, uh, I legally can do something. But the Bible says we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. The Bible says we're no longer trying to be living in this, this tyranny of Romans chapter 7 where it says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. What I don't want to do. That schizophrenic type of, of, of madness that we live in sometimes. When God wants to bring us into Romans chapter 8, which says the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk after the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. So the best thing you can do, and this is why you have discipline, this is why you get into the word, this is why you, you, you go to church, this is why you give. So many of the disciplines of the Christian life are so that you would grow in grace and in being able to hear God's voice that much more. How many of you know knowing your Bible will help you to hear God's voice a little better? See, this is why crazy things like when people say, well, God told me to do this, and I'll go, but the Bible says to do that. Well, God told me to date this guy because I'm going to lead him to Christ. I go, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't, but there is a verse about being unequally yoked, and I would look at that if I were you because you might end up getting yourself together with a bag of bones you're going to be stuck with the rest of your life. And so, therefore, you know, so it's all about being led by the Spirit. So I'll tell you a little funny story about how this came about in my life. Uh, I've been saved close to 40 years now. I spent three and a half or four years in total debauchery, drunkenness, sniffing glue, sniffing gasoline, snorting cocaine, smoking dope, taking acid, a little bit of heroin, not much, but uh, uh, just just doing everything. Then I got saved. I didn't do any drugs. But periodically, I would be at at an event, and there'd be a bunch of pizza, and somebody'd have some beer, and I'd drink a beer. It'd be no big deal. But I knew, because I, I had such a proclivity, now, I don't know about the alcohol gene, uh, that's still up for grabs in science. But it seems like Irish people, of which I am, German people, of which I am, uh, uh, African, not African Americans, uh, Native American people. If if you go to the Native American communities in the mainland, we're talking 95% alcoholic among the teenagers. You know, so now maybe it's just social pressure or maybe there is something actually physically given to that kind of addictive behavior. I kind of think it kind of could be that way because there's something, my wife can drink a glass of wine, she can drink a beer, she can do it, and she's just fine. I drink one glass of wine, and it is really hard not to drink two. And it's really hard not to drink one, but if I drink one, I'm like, I got triple temptation to, to have three. Or to have two, you know what I mean? I'm kind of an extremist personality. And God can use that because God made me a certain way. And if you can discover how God made you, you have to, like Paul said, to be addicted to the service of the saints. It's okay to be addicted, but you've got to be addicted to the right stuff. And so, anyway, so in and out of my walk with God, and periodically my wife and I have an anniversary and have a glass of wine, no big deal. People do it all the time in most cultures. Uh, but... Um, I was at a YWAM wedding once in, um, I better get this before I forget it. Uh, I had a wedding once in, 
Does anybody else want to touch it? You get the anointing. You know, just buzz, I guess I see it right now. Would you like that like a little buzz there? Bzzz. Look, look, her hair turned uh, yellow just by touching that. Man. That was really cool. Woo! <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm at this wedding. This is about eight years ago, and um, it was in it was in Maui. And uh, I, I wasn't doing anything at the wedding. I was just a, a, a just a, a, an attender. But they had all these eight eight setting circular tables all out in this nice. It was very nice. It had tiki torches and everything was cool. It was all dark. So they had a, they had a, and this is an American cultural thing where during a wedding you have the best man get up and do a toast to the uh, groom, you know, to the guy getting married. And usually it's a bunch of inside jokes that the rest of us can't get. <laughs> And uh, they, they laugh, and, and everybody's laughing and so forth. And, and he said, well, let's stand and have a toast. So, they, so the caterers to the wedding came by, and they filled up all eight places at all of the tables that seated eight people there. And, um, uh, and I had eight place settings at my table. It was me, my wife, and one other couple. But the other four... Um, Places were empty because there was not that many people that, you know, you know, not everybody showed up for the wedding. So the guy gets up and he, he says, let's hold our champagne glasses up. And then they did it. And, and, uh, and everybody was um, listening. And he says, okay. So they, my wife is dutifully sipping on her uh, little champagne glass as the guy's going through his little program there. And, uh, and then they were done with the toast. And, and my wife puts her glass down and looks over and sees my glass is empty. And she looks at the empty chair next to me and sees that that glass is empty, too. <laughs> and she looks at the third glass and sees the third glass is empty, too. And then, she, and then and I'm looking going, ooh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this is the wrath of God or the wrath of my wife, but I'm going to get it one way or the other here. <laughs> so I'm standing there, and, and I am buzzed. And... And I'm a YWAM leader at the time. You know, I'm the director of YWAM in Hawaii at the time. So it wasn't like this was long ago and far away. But my wife, now we have a saying in America called, if looks could kill. Have you ever heard that? And she looked at me with one of these. She had daggers in her eyes going, what are you doing? That's an idiot. You know, and I'm going, what are you doing? Why did you drink that? I said, I don't know, because it was there. You know. <laughs> she says, well, I'm driving home. I said, okay, you know. <laughs> So we went home, and man, I, I got the third degree, the riot act. I had Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Man, I had, I had the whole thing on the way home. <laughs> you're a man of God. What are you doing? You know, you're glad some of the young Wyomers didn't see you doing it. And I went, well, I wasn't thinking of the young Wyomers. I was thinking about me. <laughs> but so that was the last time I had anything to drink. Just because, in fact... In fact, we had a, a couple young guys on our base in Honolulu that were turning 21, and um, some of the other older staff, which kind of made me mad, uh, were going to take them out for their first, well, it wasn't their first drink, but to celebrate, you know? And I go, I go oh, you take 21-year-old young guys that have been saved for six months or something, you take them out for one drink, they're probably going to have two. And if you're an older guy, you ought to have a little bit more wisdom than to enable them and a lot of a lot of our people in YWAM come from drug and alcohol backgrounds and are messed up as teenagers sexually alcohol drugs it's just it's just we're all sinners right that's where we come from so 
these young guys took me out. We were out to the beach one day, and we had this long talk, and I told them my whole story. I told them the story I just told you guys. I went into my whole thing about drugs. I said I overdosed once. I almost died on drugs. I said if anybody should hate drugs and alcohol, it should be me. But the fact is I love drugs and I love alcohol. And, and I said, you guys think I'm spiritual because I don't drink. No, the very reason I don't drink is because I'm not spiritual. I prove that I'm not spiritual because I can't handle my alcohol. I can't handle certain liberties. You know? And this, this is really the, the, one of the key issues of walking in holiness according to the New Testament. Now, see, in the Old Testament, and this, the, the Pharisees kept the law. But who was Jesus down on more than almost anybody else? He was down on the Pharisees who kept the law. Because the law is not the issue. The heart is the issue. And so God wants us to be people who obey from the heart what the Holy Spirit is doing to us. And sometimes you might um, heal somebody on the Sabbath day, like Jesus did. And they got on Jesus' cap. Well, the law says you shouldn't. Jesus said, which of you, if you had an, axe or, uh, an ass or a donkey, would, would fall into a pit on the Sabbath? They would not get it out of there. Come on, you bunch of hypocrites. You're getting mad at me because I'm healing somebody who's sick on the Sabbath day. So Jesus said the man, uh, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for the man. In other words, the law is to serve us in more liberty and so forth. But the law has proved it to be itself to be inadequate. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And so, but the Holy Spirit is the, um, as it says, the righteousness of the law we will be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So my little exhortation to you, and, and if the shoe fits, wear it on alcohol. But alcohol, um, the, the way we talk. Now, okay, this is Danny Lehman here. This is not YWAM. This is not Daniel Lehman. This is not anybody. But I would like to suggest, and this might be, ah, the guy's getting old now, he's a little senile. Uh, I don't care for euphemistic swearing. Do you know what euphemistic swearing is? It's like, I'd really like to drop the F-bomb right now, uh, and I, that's what's really in my heart, but I can't do that in polite Christian society, so I'll say the word frickin'. And that allows me to say the dirty word in my heart, but get away with it in good, polite Christian company. And I say, why do that? Don't do that. You're above that, you guys. Don't have to do that. You know, and, and uh, to get away with talking, talking with crudity about body parts and things like that. Oh, we're liberty, Danny. Come on. Well, you might be, but I don't need that kind of liberty. And I don't think you need that kind of liberty. Rise a little above that, you guys. And I'm not saying you got to get mad at anybody or condemn anybody, but just, just, just don't even. you got more important things to do. you got, you got a better standard you can go by. You don't need all that kind of stuff. And apply that in the area. Other people can do that. That's cool. Maybe, maybe God's letting them do that, but don't you do that. Stay above it. Pursue holiness. It's not like you pursue, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to. No, no, no. You, you pursue going after Jesus and then the other stuff you don't even worry about. You go for God. And when you get up behind that pulpit or behind that microphone, you know, the, the Lord will bless and anoint you with that. Now, can he bless you when you're like my friend was drinking? Yeah, people are getting saved. God can bless people when the, when the vessel is marred. But why not make the vessel clean? Amen. We know it's God's will to make the vessel clean. Well, can I still go to heaven? That's not the issue. This is the nutty thing about American Christianity is we're always asking, well, is eternal security true? I mean, can we be saved? You know, and can we be lost once we're saved? And what if I do mess up? Is Jesus going to forgive me? Why are you even asking that question? 
Can Christians kiss? Can Christians do this? Can Christians do that? Can Christians have premarital sex? Is, is oral sex really sex? And can we do? Why are we asking these crazy questions? Why don't we try to walk as close as we can, I, I should say, as far away from the, we can from the cliff rather than walk as close as we can to the edge of the cliff and get away with as much as we want to get away with? You know, can you imagine if my wife, well, let's put the shoe on my foot. If I went to my wife and I say, oh, Linda, do you mind if I uh, spend a little, you know, go out on a date with one of the young girls? <laughs> Why would I even ask that question? Well, you know, uh, you know, you know, you and me, we've been around a long time. And you can, you can go, you know, have a date with the young. You guys would think we've got something wrong here, right? And you'd be right. But why would I even ask the question if I'm not loving my wife? Yeah. See? And we're supposed to be loving God. So why do we even do this kind of stuff, you know? And what, Sometimes I go on, I was on a YWAM base recently, and the whole base was up in arms because there was like a, a brewery-type thing right down the road, and the, the community, this, this is the non-Christian, the, the, one of the base elders was telling me this. What the community said, oh, somebody comes in, like a truck driver comes into the, to the bar and he goes in and gets a little drink. And it's a real cool thing. Got one of those big, uh, kind of like the one down here, uh, the Kona Brewery. You know, it's kind of like got a big thing. And this is where they brew the beer. And yeah, it's real home-brewed. Home yeah, it's real good stuff. So... Um, so now, and again, I'm not making a, a statement about the rightness or wrongness of it, but the leaders told me if a truck driver comes in and sits at the bar and says, you know, I always notice on Friday afternoons there's always a bunch of uh, 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 young people in their early 20s in here drinking, and the bartender says, oh, that's the Wywhammers. Yeah, they're from up there. That's, 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 in other words, that's what they're known for. They're not known for cleaning up the community. They're not known for their great righteous acts in the community. They, don't, they didn't even have programs to do anything in the community. I just talked to Penny Patu a couple minutes ago. I said, what are you doing today, Penny? I'm taking the mission builders down to Captain Cook, and we're going to clean the beaches, and we're going to... Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that will endear you to the community. But what we're known as in that particular base was, oh, that's the guys, that's the guys that they, they keep them cooped up there, making them study the Bible during the week. But on Friday afternoons, man, the bars are open, and they walk down, and the, and the jail cells at the YWAM base are open, and they go down, and they drink a, and have a good time. I'm not saying they can't, uh, uh, that they can't, I'm not saying that they can't exercise their liberty. What I am saying is, why do that? We had on this base not too long ago, a young alcoholic who confessed to his leaders, I got a real problem with alcohol. Put the cuffs on me, help me. He, he, he was honestly confessing his weakness and so forth. And so the school was helping him through it. He was doing really well. And then an older, wiser staff guy came by and said, oh, let's go out and celebrate so-and-so. And the guy ended up drunk, and uh, the cops ended up bringing him up and giving him to Steve Foth, our our security guy, and say, here's another one of your Y-whammers. I didn't put him into jail because I know you, Steve, and I know you'll take care of him. Steve goes, okay, come on. And Steve Foth has had to do that more than once. And that gives us a black eye in the community every time that happens, all because somebody's exercising their liberty. Does everybody know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not you know, if you, if you somehow think it's okay to say frickin' or if you somehow think it's cool to drink, that's, that's cool. But the biblical emphasis is you don't want to stumble those that are weak. And we get a lot of weak people in YWAM. We get a lot of kids in here that are barely saved when they get here. We get a lot of young people in here who are barely walking with God. And they need time to be strengthened in their faith. 
and they're going to follow people who have the liberty but don't exercise their liberty. They're not going to follow people who say, thou shalt not drink. Because that's legalism. You can't say that because the Bible gives you the liberty. But what you want to do is you want to go above the law. You want to go above the thou shalt nots, and you want to live in the spirit of the law. And a classic illustration, we're talking three chapters in 1 Corinthians is given to this about the issue of offering meat offered to idols. Now, I, I went onto this the other day, but the main point of it was Paul said, I don't care if, if a meat is offered to the devil himself. I'm going to, you know, I'll, uh, uh, I'm not going to eat meat while the world stands if it stumbles my brother. In other words, if somebody sees you doing it, and the higher you go in leadership, the more you'll stumble more people, you know. And uh, I was in a meeting once with Lauren when we were talking about the issue of drinking. And, and it was a hot issue because we got French people, German people, British people, uh, some Americans, a lot of the Aussies and Kiwis that are very, they're very free with this. They think uh, the last 10 minutes is a bunch of legalism I'm giving you here. And, and they're, they're entitled to their opinion. But... Um, but Lauren was in a meeting once, and he said to the Koreans, he said, what would happen to our reputation in Korea if word got out that we had free wine flowing at our YWAM events here in Kona? And the one Korean leader said, might as well cut our throat. Wouldn't get any more support, wouldn't get any more workers. We'd have a bad reputation all over Korea. Somebody else could say, well, those Koreans are legalistic. Well, that maybe, maybe not. But that's the reality of what we're dealing with. Same thing, it surprised me. Same thing among the Brazilians. Wellington was there, uh, who was the Brazilian leader. And he said basically the same thing. That's just the way we are. Well, Lauren Cunningham, he's Assembly of God. He's old school. That's why he's a teetotaler. Maybe. But he'll never get arrested for drunk driving. See what I'm saying? If we can stay as far away from the cliff as we can, that's the idea. And, and, and if I can say that to you, just using alcohol as an example, you could apply this in any area. I'm not so much preaching thou shalt not as I am saying thou shalt. Step in touch with the Holy Spirit. Do what he's telling you to do. And if he gives you the liberty and if you're of age and it's legal and you feel like you can do great. Okay? All right, enough of that. Um, let me just do a few little book reports here and just to recommend. I already talked about Bible um, Bible handbooks and so forth. I talked to you about Vishal's book, and I talked to you about Lauren's book, and I talked to you about um, Ray Comfort's Evidence Bible, and then how to read the Bible for all it's worth. I want to give you a couple of, uh, recommend a couple of books on the subject of what we call apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean to apologize for the gospel. Well, I'm sorry I'm a Christian, but, you know, i got to kind of tell you this. But no, uh, Apologetics comes from a word in the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And it says this. It says, be ready to give an answer. In other words, you got these things called answers, and you're supposed to get ready with those answers so that when somebody asks you a question of the reason of the hope that is within you, you give them an answer with gentleness and respect. So if somebody comes and says, ah, how do you know, what, what about all the other religions? Well, do you have time I can give you an answer to that? Well, um, okay. Uh, don't all roads lead to God? Well, I just believe that all roads lead to God and uh, all the religions are the same. We just say it in a different way. It's all different cultural expressions. 
you got a couple minutes? I'd like to give you an answer to that question. It might not be the answer you want. It might not be good enough for you, but can I give you an answer? And they might say, okay. So then you give them a simple little illustration. You say, let's say we're in wherever. We're in Delhi, and uh, we have a table. There's actually a book written by a famous British missionary called uh, Christ at the Round Table. So let's say we're all sitting at a table here. And, uh, and you got a Hindu, a Buddhist, a um, Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, um, a Confucianist in Japan. Uh, give me something else. What is it? What is it? New Age, yeah. New Age. New Age would be a branch of Hinduism, so we'll put those guys sitting together. New Age. New Age or Hindu. Shamanism, yeah, maybe over in Korea there might be a little shamanism. Uh, animism, animism would be good. <laughs> Somebody put Calvinism. Come on now. Take it easy on the poor Calvinists. We're going to beat them up here. All right. Um, animism would be a lot of the tribal folks down in Brazil or in Papua New Guinea or other places where. So they're all sitting around a table. And so. Um, this guy, E. Stanley Jones, he used to have these things called Christian ashrams in India. An ashram is a Hindu place of study. And he would have a Christian ashram. And, in, and he would have these meetings where he would invite leaders from all these. He probably didn't have any Mormons or JWs, but he had the others. And, um, and now, so you're, you're, you're giving an answer to your non-Christian friend. And you just say, okay. Uh, something is true. Now, some people might say, well, nothing's absolutely true. No, no. Are, are you absolutely sure that nothing absolute is true? Okay, so, so it's a self-contradictory statement. Something, something. You say this to the person who's, all roads lead to God. No, hang on. This, let me give you an answer to that. Something is true. Now, let's, for the, for the, for the argument, say, all of the religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, they're all wrong. And the atheist is right. And when you die, you die. You go into the grave. That's all there is. It's all she wrote. When you're dead, you're dead. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no personal God. It's all just a matter of time plus chance. That could be true. And you can say that at the round table. You can say, well, can everybody agree that something is true? And it might even be that nothing is true, which is what an atheist says. The atheist says nothing is true, but on the other hand, he contradicts himself and says, but absolutely, nothing is true. So, okay, let, let's, nothing happens to you when you die. It's just nothing. Okay, let's go to the Jew. Okay, well, we're the chosen people. You got to keep this law, blah, 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 and you have to be circumcised. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe the Muslims are right, and you have to keep Sharia law because this came down on the mountain with Muhammad, and this was the correction of all that. It has a little bit of Christianity in it. It has a little bit of Judaism in it, but Islam is its own religion, and you've got to do certain things in Islam, and if you don't, 
you go to hell, according to Muslim theology. Uh, Buddhists. Buddhism is a little bit of an outgrowth of Hinduism. Hinduism was the original Eastern religion. Uh, in Hinduism, you have not one infinite God like Judaism and Christianity. You have many, many personal gods. You have Krishna, who is a reincarnation of Vishnu. You have Brahma, which in some Hindu circles is the creator god. Then you have Ram, which is kind of a name for God. Then you have Ganesh. Um, I was recently at a wedding, and a girl had Ganesh beautifully tattooed on her whole back. I didn't make a hit with her. I was trying to make a joke, but I struck out, and I said, hey, would you let me take a belt sander and kind of sand off that uh, tattoo and put a, a, a cross back there? She didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, Ganesh, you've got all these different gods. According to who you read, some people say there are millions of gods in India. And I keep hearing that there's 330 million gods in India. I said, come on. Give me a list. You know, nobody's got a list. You know how big the book would be just listing 330 million gods? But there's a bunch. I mean, there, there's a bunch. So let's just say there's many gods. It's what we call a polytheistic religion. And uh, similar to animism, in which there are many gods, many spirits, and so some animistic tribes. This is what happened with Marcia and Suzuki down in the jungle, was they were animistic tribe, and they believed, according to their worldview, that if you allow a child to live who's got a certain birth defect, it's going to incur the wrath of the other spirits. And so the best thing you can do for the tribe is to kill the baby. Now, that comes from a worldview that they think is true. Marcia and Suzuki said, with all due respect, a lot of you Brazilian legislatures are Catholics and Protestants, and this is the word of God, and it says that that is not true. What is true is those little girls and boys are made in the image of God even if they have birth defects. Therefore, we should not kill them. Okay, so some people say, oh, you're, you're imposing your Christianity on our society. You've got to stay in a corner of religion. And, and Okay, so Hinduism has a thing called a caste system that we talked about the other day. A guy named Siddhartha Gautama said, I don't buy the caste system. The caste system does not adequately explain why people suffer. It's a cop-out. So he came up. He meditated under a Bodha tree up in northeast India, maybe in Nepal, and he got a revelation, and he became the enlightened one, which is what the Buddha means. Buddhism is not even a religion. Buddhism doesn't even believe in God. But they have a philosophy that you should live rightly. You should live rightly. You have four noble truths and the eightfold path. And some of these virtues are found in the other religions, like think rightly, act rightly, have a right attitude. All those things are good. But then we got to say, who determines what is right? See? So, uh, and you could go around all these things. The New Agers are just a westernized, uh, sanitized form of Hinduism. Uh, shamanism is similar to animism. Confucianism is a little bit like Buddhism. JWs, of course, and Mormons are cults that come off of Christianity and, is, and Judaism. And then you got these guys over here that they don't know what's going on, and they know what's going on. They know that there is nothing out there, and they are having their doubts. But if God came down with a T-shirt on and said, I'm God, they'd probably get saved. So, <laughs> so what you say to Mr. 
all roads lead to God, all truth is true, all truth is God's truth, is you say, either they're right and all of us are wrong, they're right and all of us are wrong, Hindus are right and all of us are wrong, the atheists are right and all of us are wrong, or the Christians are right and all the rest are wrong. They can't all be right because by self-definition, they say they're not the same as everybody else. See, what, what we get on... They get on our case and say, you're too restricted and narrow-minded and, and um, closed-minded, you know, narrow. But so is Islam. Would you agree with me? <laughs> the Muslims are a tad bit uh, <laughs> one way. <laughs> well, yeah, it's cool to be a Hindu. No, it's not cool to be a Hindu. They hate, they hate Hindus as much as they hate Christians. Maybe not as much as they hate Jews. They hate Jews. But, but, but why do they drive that way? So we have the audacity to say, well, it's up for grabs on what's true, but something is going to happen to me when I die. When I die, and God forbid, I hope I don't die for a while, but, but if you guys go up and see my body laying on Ali'i Drive because I wasn't watching where I was running and I ran into a truck, and you come and see my body there, go, oh, Brother Danny, I guess he's not going to lead next Thursday night's meeting. And um, then you're going to have to say... Where is he? And that's a good question. Something is true. Maybe these guys are right, and Danny was deluded into believing this Christian stuff, but it, you know, it, it, it did him good. It got him off drugs, and it helped him help his marriage and helped him be a little bit more morally absolute. That was okay, but, but you know, it's not really true. He just died and went back to the dust. And the beautiful thing we have is we believe that Christianity is true, and it's that truth that sets us free. And it's the same truth that we need to be able to back up with answers when non-Christians are challenging our exclusive claims to who Christ was. Now, here's a couple of books I would recommend. This is a book. I got, a, I got three cases of these coming to me now, and I got a case of them in my... In my uh, I just was with this guy a couple weeks ago. The Case for Christ. I recommended this the other day. But he deals... It's a pretty thick book but he deals with three really crucial questions. Is the Bible accurate? Can there be evidence given that the Bible is God's word? Number two, is there evidence of who Jesus is? And number three, did he rise from the dead? So this has three questions. This book was a runaway bestseller. It's still selling all over the place, and they're putting them out in trade paperbacks now, so I'm buying them up like crazy. And I'd like to get these into the hands of as many people as I can. The second book that Lee wrote, because this one was so popular, and he being an investigative journalist, the book is not just a bunch of facts and figures. It's him interviewing people. And he said, well, if that's true, you know, and so he asks really good questions like a non-Christian would ask of these guys. That's why it's such, it's such a captivating book. This one is called The Case for Faith. Now, what he does in this book is he answers what he calls the big eight. Eight big questions. And these are, these are things, you, you, if you're ever going to talk to anybody who thinks, you're going to have to come up with some answers to these questions. You know, and, and I'm all for treasure hunting and, and laying hands on somebody and saying, you feel anything? Uh, yeah, I think I feel something. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay, that, that might work, and, and that's good. Eventually, the person is going to have to deal with, do I believe in the same Jesus you're talking about? Do I believe in the historical Jesus Christ 
who literally died on the cross, literally shed literal blood for the forgiveness of my sins, and literally rose from the dead in his body. Do I believe that? And it doesn't matter if they feel like there's an electrical charge when you touch them or not. They're going to have to change the way they think. That's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. So in essence, we got to give people time to change their mind. And that's where you and I need to do our homework. It's not enough. In, in fact, it's very unloving. Oh, boy, don't get me off on this. But to go to India, now I'm going to have Stephen give me a big amen here. But I think it is unloving to send teams to India and not give them any understanding of Hinduism and Islam. There's 120 million Muslims in India. There's almost a billion Hindus in India. And there's a small minority of Christians. A bunch of them are in Kerala, where Stephen comes from. And a bunch are in the south, in Tamil Nadu, uh, in, uh, in Kannada, and in some other places. So, um, you go up to the north, you go to, go to Uttar Pradesh, you go to, you go to Jammu and Kashmir. I mean, it is a desert as far as Christianity is concerned. So to send teams up there and not equip them with some basic apologetics, I'm not talking about being Ravi Zacharias or being Lee Strobel, but something where one of you, I'm, I'm not talking to you, but whoever is the team leader, somebody needs to read a book like this and regurgitate it to the team so that they can give answers to questions like this. This is one of the big questions. What about all the other religions? Another question, why do the innocent suffer? Why is there uh, random suffering in the world? Why is there, uh, like some of us uh, know Christian Fox, he's one of our leaders here. Uh, his dad was just killed in, a, in an accident the other day. He, he apparently in the dark hit a speed bump with his, mo with his moped and he wasn't wearing a helmet and, and apparently flipped off and, and had brain damage and he died within the next day. And, and that's a, stuff like that happens. And even if you're a Christian, you go, why did God let this happen? These are the things that drive human beings. And Jesus has answers to these things. I'm not saying they're absolute slam dunk answers because there's always mystery. But I think we've got better answers than anybody else. And I think we can prove that. And that's what Lee wrote his book about. He's got another chapter on evolution. He's got other chapters on other things. Now, right along with Lee's book, I would recommend this. Now, this, in my opinion, is the best, if you want a one-time shot of answers to people who ask questions about Jesus, and this is a guy that's still alive. They call him the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century. Um, I'd say it's a neck-and-neck -neck tie between him and Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is an Indian guy, suicidal when he was 16 years of old, living in Madras, India. He got saved. <clears throat> and has become one of the foremost thinkers in the world and one of the foremost defenders of the Christian faith. So Ravi's probably more of a philosopher, and this guy's more of a theologian. But his name's Tim Keller. Ron Smith, who heads our SBS program, went to school with this guy. Ron's going to be here next week. But Tim says, the reason for God, belief in an age of skepticism. Now, you got to read it kind of... It's, it's not super hard to read, but it, it's not... It's not your pop Christian romance novel. It's, it's going to take some thinking. But how many of you love the lost enough to think a little bit? 
How many of you love India enough that if you're going to go there on an outreach, you stay home some Saturdays and you bone up on Hinduism, or you at least go on to Google and try to find out what you can about what Hindus believe so you can have an intelligent conversation with people rather than, you need to get saved because, because, because. <laughs> Why do I need to be saved? I don't understand what you're talking about. You need to be saved because, because Jesus loves you. How do you know that Jesus loves me? Well, because uh, the Bible says so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the <laughs> Bible tells me so. I, 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 how do I know that? How do I know that this is Jesus? How do I know this Jesus that you're speaking of is true? He could be an American movie star. How do I know who Jesus is? Uh, um, uh, how, do you know the, how do you know the Bible is the word of God? Because the Bible says the Bible's the word of God. That's how I know. Uh, why should I follow that? It's circular reasoning. I can't follow what you're saying. And, and you say, well, uh, uh, the Bible says the Bible's the word of God. You know, and so it just goes around in circles. But if you say, well, why should I believe in Jesus? Well, could we go to Narula's ice cream parlor and could we sit down and have an ice cream and talk about this? And then you don't go in there beating them over the head with the Bible. You go in and you ask them, what do you believe? And they tell you what. And you say, well, May I suggest that it might be more like this than like that? I've never thought about that before. I think I told you the story of witnessing to a Muslim imam on an airplane a couple of months ago. And then, well, it's a couple of years ago now. So we, I got on the plane and I showed him a verse in Romans that says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I think I said this on Monday. And... Um, and he said, oh, it's the greatness of God. And I said, no, it's the goodness of God. I said, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? And I said to him, Ali, what glorifies God more? You want to glorify God, and I want to glorify God. What glorifies God more? That God just makes everything happen? Or that God creates everything and says, I am lovable. Love me. And by our free will, we get it. And we become more like him <clears throat> because we take on his virtues. You don't have that in Islam. In Islam, you have, it doesn't matter if you think it's unjust or anything. You've got to do what God says or you're toast. And our God hangs on a cross in weakness and says, I loved you this much. How much more would you want to love me? How many of you girls would like to get married someday? Come on, put your hand up. Okay, and you go to God very boldly and you say, God... I pray that you give me a young man, tall, dark, and handsome, and lots of money. And uh, you follow <clears throat> that person to the altar, but then you recognize that he doesn't love you very much. He's kind of hanging out with other girls, and he's doing other things. So you hire a hitman to follow him around <laughs> with a taser gun, and every time he goes and looks at one of the other girls, you taser him. The, the hitman tasers him, and he goes, Whoa! And he says, oh, honey, uh, would you like a cup of coffee? Can I make you breakfast in bed? Is there anything else I can do for you, honey? And then as soon as he goes and does something that she doesn't like, the hitman tasers him again. You get what I'm getting at? Would you think he really loved you if you had to command somebody else to taser him just so he would act like he loves you? No, you would want him to love you because he loves you, right? That's what love is all about, and that's what the Trinity represents. They love each other just because of the beauty of who they are, because each one of them is very lovable. 
And the best thing, and, and this is another thing, boy, you talk about the Bible. You know, getting into the whole thing of should wives submit to their husbands. Some people flip out. Wives aren't supposed to submit to their husbands. The Bible says we're mutual submission. Well, it does talk about mutual submission, but the Bible does say wives are to submit to their husbands. So am I a chauvinist? Am I a, No. The Bible also says in the same passage that the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. How many of you know most women would not have a problem submitting to their husbands if they were like Christ? Amen? No problem. You wouldn't even have to argue about it. The reason we argue about it and the reason women are trying to get liberated, including Christian women, is because we guys are so much a bunch of knuckleheads because we're not giving them much to submit to. If I was godly and holy in every area of my life, my wife would go, oh, Danny, lead me, lead me, you know. <laughs> Sometimes she says, ah, oh, Danny, I'll see you later, you know. <laughs> so it, it all has to do with getting the revelation and so forth. All right, that's all I'm going to do on the book reviews. Um, if, if I had to uh, recommend one book, I would recommend this one. Let me just give you the chapter titles. This is Lee Strobel, Robbie Zacharias. And this, guy's, this guy here is Tim Keller. Is there only one true religion? How could a good God allow suffering? Is Christianity a straitjacket to keep you from having fun? But the church is responsible for so much injustice, which is partially true. How can a loving God send people to hell? The nature of hell, that's another good topic we won't jump into now. But uh, Science has disproved Christianity, hasn't it? Um, you can't take the Bible literally, can you? And then he's got the positive part of the book. There are clues that God gives us. The knowledge of God, the problem of sin, religion and the gospel, the story of the cross, and the reality of the resurrection. And the last one is this one called the dance of God. Let me try to illustrate this to you. I think it will bless you. This is not my revelation, but I got this from, uh, I got this from a guy named, um, I don't know, back in the third century, so I forgot his name. It was a long time ago that I met him. I met him down at Starbucks, actually. That was a joke. That just proves you weren't listening to me. Come on, you guys. I know it's almost break time, but you got to give me a break, okay? we got a couple more minutes here. All right. Um, this particular fellow, forgot his name, but he said, you know, and he put a couple of Greek words together, and he said, you know, God wants us to be involved in a perichoresis. Now, you worship leaders can relate to this. Choresis comes from the Greek word choreography. And peri comes from the word, uh, you know, like a periscope where you, you spin around. Now, I don't know if Daniel did this yet, but da Daniel's got a, one of his favorite teachings is that in Zephaniah, it says the Lord will rejoice over you with singing. And the Hebrew word there can be translated, God rejoices over you with spinning. Did Daniel ever give you that in his? Yeah, try to let him. He's got a good word on that. That God actually looks at us and spins around because he's just so stoked on us. He loves us, you know. And so perichoresis means a spinning around in a choreography. In other words, it's like a dance. Now, we have a, uh, a, a TV show in America that is still very popular, and it's called Dancing with the Stars. And <laughs> somebody said, hallelujah. All right. So in Dancing with the Stars, what happens is you'll get, 
professional dancers who are teamed up with a, um, uh, a, a football player, an actress. Right now, it's really kind of cool, the Duck Dynasty girl is on it, and she is a hardcore Christian. And she's apparently doing really well, from what I understand. I don't watch it, but I just see it on the YouTubes. I mean, on the uh, Facebook. So, um, but, but I'll give you one illustration. There was this guy. Uh, he was an American football player, African-American running back, and his name was Emmett Smith. And Emmett Smith, when he first joined up with the girl that was his partner, and what they do is they judge... And at the end of, say, 12 weeks or 15 weeks, they pronounce a winner. And it's not, they don't judge the professional dancer. They judge basically how good the professional dancer was able to train and disciple their partner in how to dance. And some of them go into it uh, with a little bit of, you know, some of them are already great athletes and, and they kind of got a little bit of an advantage. So it was evident from the very beginning that Emmett Smith didn't have a clue on how to dance. And when you saw him on the first introduction, and he's dancing, she's da- and he's going like this, and stepping on her toes, and she's, you know, uh, it, it's just not working. And, and they, they actually go to a backstory and show them practicing, and she's getting frustrated with him because he just can't learn. And, you know, and he's really trying, and, and, and they're trying. To, and so the first one, and the judges go, well, you know, you made it through the first competition. But anyway, as time went on, and because I'm a real Emmett Smith fan, I watched some of it. And I saw him get progressively better throughout the competition. And then by the time they got to the end, they had the final playoff, and Emmett Smith ended up winning the competition. And what the judges said was, you know, this is amazing. We can't even tell who's the professional dancer and who is the, uh, the, uh, the, the mentoree of the dancer. In other words... When we get into, and this is where the picture comes in and where perichoresis comes in, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to this particular church father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in a divine dance. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is submitting to God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is giving all glory to the name of the Son. And the Son is going to deliver up all things to God. And when Jesus went and ascended into heaven, he said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give my Holy Spirit to you. And they're giving and serving and, and, uh, and, and dancing with one another in this beautiful celebration of life. And you can't tell whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit who's the lead partner because they're all so perfectly in perichoresis. So this guy says, we need to enter into the dance of God. That when we lead people in worship, when we have our own relationship with the Lord, whether it's musical or not, we're into a perichoresis. And people want to be able to look at us and see Jesus. As Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And there's a fascinating passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 4, right around verse uh, 15. Really, write, write this down and look it up later. But Paul is writing to the Corinthians And he says this amazing thing. He says, I have sent Timothy to you so that he can let you know my ways, which are in Christ, which I teach everywhere and in every church. Just hang on to that. What is it? 
Oh, it should be 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15 and 16, I think. I sent Timothy to you so that he can tell you of my, Paul, my ways which are in Christ, which I teach everywhere and in every church. This would be the equivalent of me writing a letter, say, to Maui uh, and say, hey, Maui Christians, I'm sending David Jackson over there before I get there, and David's going to tell you about me. David's, I have told David to tell you about Danny Lehman because he hangs out with Danny Lehman, and he can tell you what a great guy Danny Lehman is and how Christ-like he is. Now, does, that sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? It sounds a little presumptuous and a little cocky, and I don't think Paul was cocky, and I don't think he was arrogant. I think he was confident that he was dancing with God, and I think he was confident that other people saw him dancing with God and said, that guy's like Jesus. So it ended up that when they ended up doing the Dancing with the Stars competition, it looked like Emmett Smith was actually the lead partner because he had so learned from his partner how to dance that they had this beautiful perichoresis, and they spun around, and it was a beautiful... And I'm not even a, a dance... I not only am not a dance expert, I'm not even a dance fan. I could care less about dancing. But it was a beautiful thing to behold when somebody really knows what they're doing. And this is where we appreciate excellence. Even if you're not a basketball fan, to watch videos of Michael Jordan is, is a wonderful thing to watch. To watch Kelly Slater, if you're not a surfer, and to watch him surf, it is a beautiful thing to watch. And you can see that in any area of expertise. You can see it in any area of uh, um, uh, who I was looking at last night. It might have been uh, which one of you was playing the um, oh, anyway I just looked at that and I went, man, that must be a difficult instrument to play. And, but I so appreciated it, but that's not my favorite instrument. My favorite instrument is an electric guitar. But I look at that and I go, wow. You know, and so, so you can appreciate beauty, and that's what being a Christian is all about. It's dancing with the Lord and following his every step and, and, and uh, you know, not letting a toenail get out of place, but just everything just following the Lord so that we can be, be, it could be a clunky football player and end up being a beautiful dancer if we're following the right person who's doing the lead. And then they can't even tell if the other person's doing the lead or not. I'll tell you one story, then we'll take a break. Um, there is a book that was a best-selling book back in the day, and it was by a Romanian pastor, and his name was Richard Wormbrand. Has anybody ever heard that name before? Okay, Richard Wormbrand was a, a Lutheran Romanian pastor, and he was arrested for preaching the gospel, and he was given 14-year prison sentence in Romania. He was beaten on a regular basis. He was tortured. And um, he got out after uh, 14 years. He actually um, was given opportunity to address the United States Congress. He took his shirt off in front of the United States Congress and showed them the welts all over his back. He could hardly walk, even though he was only in his 60s. I mean, that's relatively young. He was, relatively, he, he was in his 60s when he got out, but he could hardly walk because they had beaten his ankles so bad and had his ankles in chains. He spent three out of the 14 years in solitary confinement, in which he did not see a color for three years. 
except the gray of his prison uniform, the brown of his excrement, the yellow of his urine, and the darkness of the cell. And he had his struggles in there, but he worshiped God every day. And he said, I use my chains as a tambourine. And he worshiped God in the middle of it. Now, by the grace of God, I got to meet Richard Wormbrand a couple times. And so, I'll never forget the first time I met him. They said, oh, this is Danny Lehman. He's one of the elders. And this time I was like 24 years old. And he said, he is too young to be an elder. I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but when I was in his presence, I didn't say much because I was in the presence of Christ. I was in the presence of somebody that was like Jesus. And one of the reasons he was like Jesus was because he suffered. And so um, I'm listening to Richard, and he had to sit down as he was teaching us because he couldn't stand up because of his ankles uh, injuries. And he was teaching and preaching. And he had just come out with a new book. And this is when he's in his late 60s. And, he, and the book was called, If That Were Christ, Would You Give Him Your Blanket? And it's taken from an event that happened in the prison cell. This was not solitary confinement. It was when he was with the other prisoners. And there was a regular guard that just had it in for Wormbrand. And he might beat the other guys five times, but he'd beat Wormbrand ten times. He just hated this guy. And Wormbrand would just take the beatings. Well, a little bit of time went by, and Mr. Bad Guy, that was the perpetrator of the torture, Ended up doing something. I got thrown into the same prison. So he's in the prison with Wormbrand. And everyone is given a ration of um, food and blankets and things like that. And this is Romania. It's cold, dank, it's dark, it's wet. And um, Wormbrand is huddled over into a corner. And for some reason, the former guard doesn't have a blanket. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, If that were Christ, would you give him your blanket? So Wormbrand takes off his blanket. He goes over to the guy that beat the tar out of him several times, and he put the blanket around him and walked over and shook back in his part of the cell. And there was another, uh, at, at least one other prisoner who took note of this. And I don't know how much time, a day or two or so later, he walked up to him and he said, you know, I know you're a pastor, but... Jesus just seems so far away. It was 2,000 years ago. I can't relate. I went to church as a little boy, but I can't really, I can't connect and God and Jesus and all this. And what is Jesus really like? And Wormbrand said, well, he's a lot like me. Now, how many of you know, you could say that and you could, you know, you could be arrogant and all that, but... I think 14 years in prison, three years in solitary confinement would knock the arrogance out of anybody. But Richard Wormbrand said, you know what? He's a lot like me. And that guy gave his life to the Lord. I'm not sure if the guard gave his life to the Lord. I think he did. But you can just see the, the reality of walking with God and walking in the Spirit so they can be in this wonderful dance. Now, unfortunately, well, I, don't, I guess I'm apologizing for God and I don't want to do that. But unfortunately, a lot of this kind of Christ-likeness comes through suffering. Let me give you one more verse, then we'll take our break, and then it's all going to be practical from here on out. No more preaching. Um, um, oh, yeah, Hebrews chapter 5. We've got to get... Oh, boy. 
well, I can say this in a couple of minutes. We have a lady in YWAM who's over all of our DTSs. Her name is Maureen Menard. Anybody ever heard of Maureen Menard? Great lady. And she has been kind of obsessed for the last couple of years in a good obsession, trying to remind us of the humanity of Christ. Because good Christian theology says Christ was totally God, but he was also totally man. He wasn't half God and half man. He was, this is the mystery of the incarnation. He was totally God, totally man at the same time. But we so honor Jesus, and we worship Jesus, and we, it's all about the name that is above every name. And sometimes we forget about his humanity. And we forget that, like in Luke chapter 2, it says Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with man. He grew in mental discipline, wisdom. He grew in physical discipline, stature. He grew in spiritual discipline, favor with God. And he grew in um, uh, social discipline, favor with man. I'll talk more about that after the break. So, But um, Jesus grew. I thought Jesus was just bionic. You know, I thought he just came out of the womb raising the dead and healing the... No, no. He came out of the womb crying and cold in that stable in Bethlehem. And he was a little kid. Now, what he did when he was a little kid, how he responded to another kid throwing sand in his face, I don't know. How did he play soccer when he was 18? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about what he did when he was 18, so we don't know. But this is an interesting reflection on Jesus' humanity. Hebrews chapter um, um, 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. It doesn't even say he was heard because he's the son of God. Of course the father's going to listen to him. It says he was heard because of his reverent submission. Some of your translations will say he was heard because he feared the Lord. Humble and devoted. He was heard because he was humble and devoted. Well, how could he be anything but devoted? Well, it says that for a reason. It's kind of like the old, the old argument about when Jesus was tempted. Could he really have sinned? Well, of course he could because he was a man and he was tempted like we are. But he was God, so how could he sin? I don't know. You can figure it out on your own. I, don't, I can't. All right. Look at this. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And he became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. So apparently Jesus himself learned obedience. Now, you've been a Christian long enough to know this, right? The bottom line on the Christian life is to live by faith, and out of that faith comes obedience to God's commands, right? That's what the Christian life's all about. If you love me, you keep my commandments. You can say you love me all you want, but if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. So it's very simple. Faith and obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Anybody ever heard that song? Beautiful hymn. 
when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word and his glory he sheds on our way. Uh, how's it go? Oh, come on. You got to help me out here. You're killing me here. Try, uh, to be happy in Jesus. Put this one on. Trust in Jesus. Um, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy. And I can see the power of God's falling over this room right now. No, as we close, Jesus was learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, to be absolutely 100% honest with you, I am a sissy. I do not like suffering. I don't like anything inconvenient that... Danny is just a little boy. And he really doesn't like anything inconvenient. Just today, he was taking a shower, and when he put it, it was just a little bit too cold for little Danny. So little Danny turned it a little bit warmer so it would be perfect for Danny. And then little Danny went in to have his quiet time with the God who suffered excruciating pain on the cross for his salvation. And Danny's in a mission organization following a tradition of missionaries of thousands who had laid down their lives in in incredible torture for the cause of Christ. And as he was having his quiet time, it was a little too hot in his room. So he hit a little button so his fan would work, so he could have a pleasant, quiet time and worship the Jesus who gives him everything. And then he was a little bit hungry. So he went down and he made himself some bread, but his bread wasn't good enough. So he got out his toaster and he toasted his bread because he doesn't want to be inconvenienced. And then when he was making his ton out of his driveway, there was a truck there. And that truck inconvenienced little Danny. And he was complaining to God about the truck. Oh, his life is so hard. He has so much suffering that he does. And the other day, he went to pass out a tract to a non-believer. And the non-believer threw his tract on the ground. And that really hurt Widow Danny's feelings. And so he went and he signed up for an inner healing course because, because he was such a wounded spirit. And he said, Jesus, Jesus, I am so wounded. I have a wounded spirit. Could you, could you send your Holy Spirit to, I want to cuddle to the Father. I want to get, I want to cuddle to Jesus. I want Jesus to love me. Daddy, Daddy, can I sit on your lap? Oh, come, my child. Why? Well, when you were walking across the beach and the, the sand was a little hot for your little pinky toes. <laughs> and did you notice that as you turned back around, there was only one set of footprints, my child? That's because I was carrying you across the beach. Oh, child, it's all about you. How many of you know how ridiculous that all is?
How many of you know Jesus talks about be like men, be like women of God, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Quit you like men. Be strong, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's get strong in the Lord. You know, and if somebody spits in your face or, I mean, how about all of the verses in the Bible that talk about suffering and trials and persecutions? Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to test your faith, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are a partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. That's good stuff. That's Bible. And that's why we get passionate for the word, because the word gets us out of this incipient little, I'm so, I'm so wounded. Okay, I'm so sorry you're wounded. Let me cry a little bit with you. But how about the Hindus out there? They're a tad bit wounded. They've been living in darkness for the last 2,600 years, and they need the light of Christ. How about these poor Buddhists that are out there in Nepal spinning around prayer wheels, taking them nowhere? How about telling them they can have a loving Heavenly Father who X'd out the four noble truths and the eightfold path and gave them the righteousness of Christ in a moment if they would believe in Christ. How about the Muslims out there? How about them? They really got, oh, but my problems are so... Sometimes, now I'm doing a little facetious here and I'm being a little funny. I believe in inner healing and I believe if you got to get healed, get healed. But get healed and go to the healer and get healed. But don't sit around moaning and groaning about your problems for the rest of your life because God doesn't want to hear it. Does that sound mean and harsh and nasty? Sorry. But Jesus wants us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Of course, we're all busted up when we come to I came to the Lord. I couldn't even put a sentence together because I was such a mess. But Jesus healed me, and then Jesus filled me with his spirit, and he told me to go into the world and make changes. And God's not going to be able to make changes with people who are in the eternal childhood and the eternal infancy of the believer. We have to be challenged to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And if somebody comes up and says, well, I can't find Jesus, well, follow me and you'll find Jesus. Come on. Because I'm following Jesus and he's only going in one direction and you come follow me and we'll both be following Jesus together. Is that the kind of person you want to be? Then go to God and, and whatever you need as far as emotional healing, healing of the memories, go get it. How many of you know the healer is in heaven with healing in his wings waiting to, to not only forgive you but to heal you and to make you a new person? So that you can be a disciple of Christ who obeys his commandments and does what he tells you to do. And when you fall, you get back up again and you don't go crying about it. You say, sorry about that, Lord. I trust you're going to forgive me. I'm going on. And that must be the Holy Spirit telling us to take a break. Okay. Okay. All right. <clears throat> we got about an hour left. And I'm prepared to uh, go into some real ultra-practical stuff. But I... Don't want to leave you with any uh, hanging questions. Any questions? Yeah. Don't apologize. I want questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They say the difference between C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller is back in the day that C.S. Lewis was writing. But actually, Mere Christianity came from a series of radio broadcasts that he did during World War II. So somebody transcribed that and put it into the book. If you don't know what we're talking about, C.S. Lewis is usually considered... There's two names in the English-speaking world 
in the area of apologetics, general people who gave good reasons for the Christian faith. And those two people were C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. C.S. Lewis would make a point and then would take a chapter and go around and bang, you get the point at the end of the chapter. Tim Keller is more, he brings it around within a paragraph. It's not as thought through as C.S. Lewis, but Tim Keller is presuming that most young people today don't think things through. You've got to give it to them right away, and hopefully if you give them the answer right away, they'll, they'll ask for more truth. It's not that your generation is dumber or anything like that. It's just that the way you think, you don't realize this, but you have been trained to think in sound bites. You've been programmed for that by television. Um, <clears throat> the way, if you ever see a advertisement for a movie, if you were to count the number of scenes, you'd probably have 60 scenes in a 30-second commercial or, or less or, or, more, or, or more. And so in the days of C.S. Lewis, there was no television. There was nothing to, to stimulate our multitasking brain like there is now. And so C.S. Lewis helps you to think things through. I would highly recommend C.S. Lewis because he really does help you to think things through. And he, and he uses great terms like, uh, you must believe in Jesus like you believe in your sums. And what he meant by the sums was the way you add two and two equals four, your sums, a British way of saying that. But um, yeah, I'd highly recommend C.S. Lewis. If you can handle Francis Schaeffer, he's a tad bit more difficult to understand. Unfortunately, his son has backslid and is on a rampage against his dad. It's a very sad, sad situation. Uh, but Francis Schaeffer uh, was one of the original disciples of Lauren Cunningham. If you read Lauren's book, um, the, the book that transforms nations, in the middle, he's got a section called uh, Truths That Transform or something. And he gives a lot of the credit to Francis Schaeffer back in the early days in Switzerland. Uh, when Schaefer was in La Brie and uh, Lauren was in Lausanne. And um, so I'd highly recommend both of those guys, Lee Strobel. There's another guy. Uh, there's two of them, actually, a father-son team. One's about 10 years older than me. His name is Josh McDowell. And he has a tremendous brain. And uh, he was another one of these guys that tried to refute the Christian faith and became a believer in the process. And he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, but it's a tough read. You know, you just got to, that's why I'm not highly, I think it's great, but you just got to have the time to sit down and think things through. But he's got a son named um, Sean McDowell, who is about Daniel's age and is really good at uh, communicating to your generation the need for apologetics. You can just hit these guys on Google and come up and YouTube and get their stuff. But Sean McDowell is really good and uh, takes after his dad. Um, Lee Strobel, highly recommended. There are some other guys, but they, they tend to get pretty deep. William Lane Craig. If you ever want to see a good debate, just hit William Lane Craig on your Google or, or on YouTube and then see who he's debating. And just He's brilliant. He was, he was debating this one atheist guy and you wouldn't appreciate this if you didn't. There was this Catholic guy named uh, William F. Buckley who died a few years ago. But he's a brilliant guy. And William F. Buckley was, was moder moderating the debate between the Christian, William Lane Craig, and the atheist. And uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins. I'm not sure. 
But they were going back and forth, and, and the atheists made these, like this charge against the Christian faith. And William Lane Craig, it was almost like he was reading off of a manuscript, but he just, it was on the top of his head. He said, well, that's not true for five reasons. Number one, dot, 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 dot. number two, dot, 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 dot. number three. And he just rattled it off, and you could see the, it, it was like the atheist was being shot on a firing squad, you know. <laughs> and, um, and William F. Buckley said, hmm, put that into your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> just because it, it was obvious that William Lane Craig. So I, this is something I like to do. This is a little discipline for you. Now, my wife says, Danny, when you start talking like this, you sound like an obsessive, compulsive. Uh. But I agree. I, I just say, I am obsessed, and I'm compulsive. But I hope I'm obsessed and compulsive about the right stuff. I mean, I think we should be obsessively compulsed with Jesus. Amen? And, and um, so anyway, um, I have, um, obviously I have a computer. So what I'll do if I'm cleaning my house my wife says, go clean the garage. I'll take my computer down to the garage, and I'll dial up a William Lane Craig debate and put it on while I'm cleaning my garage. And then I'll learn and listen while I'm cleaning my garage. If I'm scrubbing the floor in the bathroom, uh, I have a cassette tape player. Now, that's an ancient communication device that we used back in the day. I know a lot of you don't know what it is. It was around during the time when Diamond Head Creator was first being formed. And uh, Diamond Head Creator. And so... Um, uh, and because I have the whole Bible on cassette. And because nobody buys cassettes anymore, I was able to get the whole Bible on cassette for about $39. Um, I've got the whole Bible on CD as well. So I've got a CD player in one room. I've got a cassette player in another room. I've got another cassette player in my bathroom. And uh, whenever I go in to brush my teeth, take a shower, I'm always listening to a guy just reading the Word of God over and over and over again. So you're just constantly listening to that. So you just, uh, why, you know, people say, well, that's obsessive-compulsive. What else are you going to do with your time? Am I going to listen to the oldies? Let's spend the night together. I, can, I, don't, want to, I don't need that stuff in my mind. You know? you know, George Michael singing, I want your sex. I don't need to listen to that. I don't need to listen to Rama Lama stuff on the radio. I, I, I need to listen to Jesus. And, I, and, and so listening to the Word of God, listening to teaching, uh, and really, on the one hand, your generation has been a little shortchanged because you're soundbite generation, and you don't tend to think in long, logical, sequential things that engage your mind for a couple of hours. And so educators now, uh, all over the world, secular educators are saying, how do we educate our young people? And so what they do is they, they just do different types of learning styles. And that's good. Some of us are more semantic learners. Some of us are more visual learners. Many of us are more tactile learners. So that um, with some of you, I could teach on how to witness on the streets. And if you're a semantic learner, you're taking notes and you can go out and do it. But if you're a tactile learner, It'd be better just to grab you by the hand and say, let's go witnessing and take you with me, and you would learn more that way than you would if I um, preached it to you. But, but we're all different. So because of the way we're being programmed in learning, uh, we have to find out what best serves our learning style as best as we can and feed that. With me, because I'm a semantic learner, I'm listening to the Word of God all the time. I'm, I've got cassette tapes. I got one old beat-up van that's 20 years old, and that's got an old cassette player in it, so I have Bible tapes in there. My wife's got a 
newer car, it's a CD player, so I put CDs in there, but it's all listening to a guy just reading the Bible over and over again, and that kind of enhances my memory work. Now, what I did about, um, we talked about reading yesterday, and I want to jump over to m memorization. Um, some people say, well, how do you memorize so, many, so much scripture? It just takes time, and you do it one word at a time. And um, the word by heart guys do it different than I do. And I actually had a long talk one day with uh, Bruce Kuhn, who is the leader. He's kind of the main Shakespearean actor, discipler guy who really helped Paul Childers along. Although Paul Childers was already memorizing large chunks of the Bible before he met Bruce Kuhn. But they do it a little bit different than I do. And what I, I kind of do it the old-fashioned way, where I just do it in rote repetition. It's laborious. It's work. But it's work that is greatly rewarded because if you know so much scripture, like for instance, if I got thrown in a Romanian prison, I got a third of the New Testament memorized. So now I hope I would take advantage of it and not sit there crying all day long, which I probably would. <laughs> I don't want to be in jail. I didn't do anything. Come on, God. I don't want to go to jail. This wasn't in the contract. I mean, I listened to TV preachers. They said it was all love and joy and peace and long-suffering. And I'm going, I don't want to be in jail. I don't want to suffer, you know. But hopefully, I'd be in there, and they'd be beating me in the head and whacking me in the head and whipping me in the back. And I'd be laying there, and I'd say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of the dead, to whom we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God. And just quote the scriptures and then stay strong in the Lord as you're being beaten and whipped and tortured in a prison camp. And you just speak the word of God. Isn't that cool? That's, that's what I'd like to do. I don't know if I would do it or not. But how do I memorize scripture like that? I started out memorizing like the, um, what we might call the hunt and peck method. Okay. Um, I need a verse on faith. Okay. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Okay. I need a verse on love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians. You, know, you can do that. But then you're memorizing all the street addresses and all the names and all the numbers, and you don't have to worry about that. The numbers were not inspired by God. The verses were not inspired by God. Verses didn't come along until a couple of hundred years ago. The original manuscripts of the Bible were written in these long, run-on sentences. Just for your information, not that you're going to lose your salvation if you don't know this, but in Ephesians 1, there's one sentence that goes from verse 3 to verse 14. It's one long, run-on sentence. But um, uh, that's the way the Bible was originally written. So the reason that I like to memorize whole chapters and whole books is because that's the way the Bible was written. And if you memorize it in its context, then you'll have less problems with interpretation out of context see um, like yesterday and I, I should have corrected myself on this but I was thinking about this last night when I had somebody around here, it might have been Lynn I had somebody read we walk by faith and not by sight anybody remember that I don't know who that was we walk by faith and not by sight and my point was we walk if you're walking by faith you're not walking by sight if you're, you know etc 
But that's in the context of talking about the resurrection of the body, which, which, which enhances the, the, the phrase that much more because it says, though our earthly house of this tent were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. For we walk by faith and not by sight. So the context of walking by faith and not by sight is in the context of facing death. See? So that when I or you face death, we go to 2 Corinthians 5 and we go, the earthly house of this tent were destroyed. I have a building. This is a tent. This is just a, just a tent. It's, just, it's like a bunch of old canvas that's blowing in the wind and eventually it's going to fall off and I'm going to die and I'm going to shrivel up. But... This tent will give way to a building that's from heaven, from God. And I walk by faith and believe that. So it gives the verse that much more punch because it's, it's in its context. And so um, if you memorize the Bible as it was written, then you have less tendency to proof text. That is to slap texts to prove your point. But you get the whole counsel of God. This is why... I've kind of been making fun of it, but the whole suffering thing, most of us don't get that because when we see the verses on suffering, we want to run through them to get to the verses on prosperity and healing and blessing and prosperity and all that. But, but if you're reading the Bible in its context, you get the whole thing, and then you, then you, um, you, um, I just had another thought come into my mind. I'm trying to remember where this came from. Um, Yeah, but I was just, um, it does have to do with memorizing it, but it has to do with the whole Bible and its context. I think it's this guy that came to me. Remember I told you about the guy that came to me, and um, he said he wanted to quit because he was dry, and he didn't want to inflict himself on the students, and yes, sir, and so forth. And I said to him, you know, he says, I just don't feel God anymore, and I don't feel joy, and I don't feel this and feel that, and he was really going off on his feelings. And I, and I said to him, this was after about an hour of what I thought was, for a guy like me, pretty good father-heart counseling. I was really giving him love and compassion and best as I could. But at the same time, I said, where did you get the impression that God was somehow obligated to make you happy all the time? Like, where did you get the idea that God's up there in heaven saying, uh-oh, my people are going to backslide unless I give them all kinds of goodies? And no. God's up in heaven. He's got a job to do. He wants the whole world to hear about this wonderful good news that you and I experience every day. And to do that, he's going to have to have some soldiers. Now, getting back to the memorizing scripture, if you can start out, and this is what happened to me. Um, I, I didn't decide. Well, I guess I did decide to start memorizing scripture. But what I was doing, I was just reading the Bible so much because I, I had, um, I think I told you this, I had some severe memory problems because I'd taken a lot of LSD, I'd done a lot of dope, and so a lot of my memory banks were very fried, very, very, um, very non-functional. It was hard for me to remember things. I couldn't get a job where I needed to remember things. I was pretty much of a mess. And I came to the Lord, and about two weeks after I came to the Lord, I had kind of had a visitation from God, and he spoke to me a verse out of context in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, which says, 
that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, in its context, it's, it's a cryptic thing. The word is washed. The word washes the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. And So it's, in its context, it's saying something else. But I felt like God spoke to me out of that verse that I'm going to cleanse your mind from the effects of the drugs by my word. Now, I got nothing against rehab programs like teen. And matter of fact, Teen Challenge is a Christian one. Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of a neutral one. Narcotics Anonymous, I say anything that works, I'm, I'm for. Anything that can get you sober, even if it's not a Christian thing, that's great. Because you don't want to be sober or, I mean, you don't want to be a drug addict or anything. So anything is good. So, but, but I, God didn't deal with me that way. God spoke to me and he said, I'm going to wash your mind with the water of the word. And I had a Jewish Bible teacher. I went to him once and I said, I'm all dazed and confused and uh, I don't know what to do. And, and he said, read the Bible, read the Bible, read it. Read it from cover to cover. Read it from Matthew to Revelation. Read it from, from Genesis to Exodus. To, and he just said, read. So I read the Bible literally three or four, sometimes five hours a day, just reading it, reading it, reading it, with the faith that God was cleansing my mind by the reading of the, wor- by the, reading of the Word. And I'll never forget the day I was working dead-end jobs before I was a Christian. I worked in a car wash. Then I worked as a dishwasher. Uh, then I worked in a, in a Brussels sprout cannery. And I still can't eat Brussels sprouts to this day because I saw what they did to those poor things. But, but um, so these, these were not the kind of jobs that my lawyer father or my uh, detective brother would have thought was very uh, productive. I, I was pretty much a loser. You know, I'm barely hanging on. And... Um, and never forget the day when an older preacher kind of took a liking to me, and he said, Dan, I want to teach you a trade. And he introduced me to concrete and taught me how to finish cement. And I will never forget the day when I was on the job, and I, they told me to set up some forms for a driveway, and I had to, and I had to go over and look at the, at the blueprints, and then, and then I remembered the uh, dimensions that were on the blueprints, and I remembered it and put it together, and I went, happy day, man, I'm healed. But it didn't come instantaneous with me. It came a, but a regular diet of the Word of God to be able to, to change me. Now, I can't tell you the benefits of having God's Word memorized. I'll, I'll tell you a few of them. Number one, when you're praying, you know, you're praying and you're going, Lord, um, let's say you're in intercession time. Now, how many of you ever been in a, in a YWAM intercession time and it went kind of like this? You're sitting around with your staff person. Okay, let's pray and wait on God. So you wait for a few minutes. What'd you get? Oh, I didn't get anything. I didn't know I was supposed to get anything. Okay, what'd you get? Uh, 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 God? Okay. What'd you get? Oh, huh, I'm fine. I fell asleep. Okay. What'd you get? Uh, what'd you get? Oh, I got a picture of a of an eyeball. And it was frizzy hair coming out of the eyeball. And it was leaning on a lamppost. And then somebody else says, I got the interpretation. Oh, what was it? We got to go out witnessing and look for a girl named Eileen who's got frizzy hair. 
And if there's a good old evangelical Baptist in the prayer meeting, he says, you guys are low, low. I'm getting out of here. Take me to the airport. You know. So, or, or, uh, well, I just got an email on this yesterday, so forgive me. But it was a friend of mine who went with me to a conference in India. And he's, he's a Pentecostal guy, so he understands the moving of the Spirit. But he was... We were sitting in the back of the conference, and there was two women over on the right side of the conference, and they were going like this. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. This is a And my friend says, Danny, what are they doing? I said, I don't know. I've never seen that done before. And uh, I said, why don't you go ask them? So he goes over, and he says, what were you ladies doing? And they said, there was evil spirits coming from the east, and we were pushing them toward the west. <laughs> and my friend was, Danny, you told me this was a central missions conference, and I was going to meet all these radical white women. One guy got up and said, I was in bed last night, and these were sick of me. <laughs> and I'm just going, this is... So, my friend... Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't tickle you, and, and I'm not... I don't know, he's never, t- he's never tickled me. Did he tickle you? Stephen, did he tickle you? Did Jesus tickle you? Jesus tickled me on my way to Calcutta. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, so I'm, I'm trying to make a point. But my friend, he says, Danny, pushing the demons from the east to the west and Jesus tickling people, and I, I, just, I just don't understand. And I said, well, I, I don't understand it. So I just let it go. But my point is, uh, when you're memorizing Scripture... <laughs> You can pray things that are, like for instance, somebody in intercession comes up and says, okay, we got to pray for, we got to pray for um, China. Okay, well, that's a big one. Okay, well, how are we going to, Lord, we just pray for China. And we go, Lord, you said in your word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, that we were to pray, first of all, for kings, for rulers, and for all that are in authority, so that we can live a life of godliness and dignity because it is your will for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior because it is your will that everyone be saved. And that's why you sent Christ into the world to be a ransom for many. And Lord, so we pray. It says all that are in authority. I don't even know all that's in authority in China, but you do. So I pray for the prime minister. Don't even know his name. I pray for the main guy. I pray for the cabinet. I pray for all the leaders of China. I pray, you said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, to pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be received. And so we pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be received in China in Jesus' name. Lord, you said in your word in John chapter 6 verse 44, 
that no man can come to Jesus except the Father draw him. So we pray that you'd send your spirit into China and may it draw people to him, O oh God. O oh Lord, you said in your word that uh, Paul the Apostle needed to become all things to all men in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. So therefore, Lord, we pray that uh, there would be Chinese workers who could, be, who could contextualize the gospel in China and that they could become all things to all men that, they, that would be there in China. And, may, and you're just praying scripture and you're praying truth. You can pray the prayers of the Bible. You can pray the prayers that, um, that Paul prayed in, in the book of Ephesians. In, in Ephesians 1, he says, Lord, I pray that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they would know the hope of your calling and the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. This is how I did it last night when Johnny called us to, to pray for those that came forward. It was just so loud. Nobody could hear what I was praying anyway, but I was praying, Lord, give them a spirit of wisdom and understanding and revelation. Are they supposed to adopt an actual baby or are they supposed to just be a support worker to others? Lord, I pray that you give this couple your wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would help them to uh, know the knowledge and just praying scripture and praying truth into their hearts. Now, of course, there are times when God might tickle you or he might do whatever and that's okay I'm, I'm forgive my sarcasm I'm just trying to make a point is to get down to the uh, to the truth of the word and if you're memorizing scripture then you've got it where you can utilize it another thing about memorizing scripture is faith comes by hearing the word of God and so if you're hearing the word of God and you're speaking the word of God whether you're reading it off the book or you're reading it out of your memory and my suggestion would be try to bone up as much memory work as you can. Now, he, here's, the, here's the practical drawback. This is my money-back guarantee. Sam will give you all of your tuition back if I'm wrong about this. All right. Money-back guarantee. If you give God five minutes of your quiet time in the morning... And somehow, later in the day, you can d -d 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 discipline yourself for five minutes in the afternoon or evening. Your whole life will be changed, and you will have reams of Scripture memorized. I'm not going to say in no time, but in a short period of time. How many of you could remember? How many of you think if you had five minutes a day, you set your watch, you did your journaling in your YWAM prayer journal. You did your daily Bible reading. You did your reading of the required books. And you try to squeeze an extra five minutes out of your quiet time. And you start out with verse one of chapter one of your favorite book. Anybody here have a favorite book? What is it, Nia? Book of the Bible. First and second Kings. Um, what was that? Oh, uh, what's it called? Oh, oh, I heard. I heard there's a real intellectual um, movie coming out. I'm planning on seeing called Dumb and Dumber. Number two. <laughs> Whenever I see that, I go. That reminds me of me. You know. <laughs> You know, you know, this shows you where our country, you, you non-Americans, this shows you where the Americans are. Dumb and Dumber is the number one movie in America right now. <laughs> that's because we, we have such an intellectual prowess, you know, that's where we are. 
I know it's Dumb and Dumber too, but it's it's number one in the. <laughs> anyway, I got to get into this memory stuff. All right, so five minutes. Let's say, I'm sorry, Mia, that didn't fit into my illustrations. I thought you were going to say something like Romans or something like that. Let let's say, for the sake of the illustration, you said something like. Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 13 or Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 or something like that. So, um, let's say it's Romans 8. So, you get Romans 8 and you go, you read in your Bible and say, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who don't walk after the flesh but walk according to the Spirit. Now, it took, you about, took me about 10 seconds to read that. Now, I got... Four minutes and 50 seconds to memorize it. So I just, and and this is another thing. Take it easy on yourself. Don't try to memorize large streams of scripture at once. Try to just do it in bite-sized chunks. Line upon line, precept upon precept, a little bit here, a little bit there, and just a little bit. So you got your one verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And then a thought comes into your mind. So-and-so is back in New York, and it's five hours later, and you got to call him. You go, no, no, I I can call him later. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk. And you just, just do it, just hard work. Just repeat it until you get it. And I would, if you do that, for five minutes, you'll, you'll have it. I mean, even with an average memory. And I had a very much below average memory, so I don't have a lot of mercy on you because you didn't do 60 hits of LSD like I did. So you can do it, but just take five minutes. Then try, but, but in memory work, you have to reinforce the memory. See, this is why, getting back to the Bible, this is why, why did the Jews have all these feasts? Like, like, why did God do the circumcision thing? Doesn't that sound kind of barbaric? Grab a hold of that thing and chop that thing like that. You know, I mean, sheesh. I mean, yeah, it grosses you out just thinking about it. Especially the guys. We go, oh. Yeah, it is disturbing, but God did that. God, why, did, why did God do that? Because as it's disturbing, Bo, it is, it is memorable. Now, most of us get it done when we're kids, so we don't remember it. But in the Bible, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be, follow the Jewish God, you can be 21 and you're on the chopping block, literally. And so that's going to, now, that's going to remind you that you're in a covenant with God. You know, why did he do it there? Why didn't he do it on your pinky finger or something like that? Why did he do it there? Because that's something that most men consider very precious to them. And when that thing gets hit, I'm not trying to be funny. When that thing gets hit like that, you remember that. And another thing, and again, I'm not, it's going to sound funny, but I'm not trying to be funny. You use that little guy about um, 10, 12 times a day. And you're reminded, 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 and memory, memory, memory that you're in a covenant relationship with God because of circumcision. See? And so why did he have the Feast of Tabernacles? To remind them that they used to wander around in tents. Why did they have the feast of Pentecost? That was like a, like a Thanksgiving day. Why did he have the feast of, like, what are we doing in Thanksgiving day? 
oh boy, I just, I'm so ashamed of America because Thanksgiving Day used to be thanks. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 10 years there's no more Thanksgiving Day because some pagan is going to wake up and say, who are we giving thanks to anyway? We're not gonna, there's no God out there to thank. Let's just call it Turkey Day. They're already doing that in a lot of places. In fact, Christmas is banned, I think, at Walmart. I, or, or there's, I just read this on the It was one of these chains. It's going to be holidays, um, happy day, December day, whatever. But they're taking these feasts that are there to remind us in our history. Thank God that he saved those pilgrims. And they were God-fearing people. And, and th that was the beginning of our culture, cultural history. And Christmas, even though it might have some pagan stuff hanging on there, it's to remind us of Christ. And, and all that's being done away. But all of that is for memory. And to remember in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That's what the Feast of Passover was all about. Remember the blood. Why, why was it so bloody? Bloody is just like circumcision. Bloody is something that you just remember when you see a bunch of blood. Little kids would see that little innocent lamb get their throat cut. Daddy, daddy, why does he have to have his throat cut? It's so that we would know and remember what sin does to people and the cost that sin has to God. And an innocent lamb had to be slaughtered, pointing to the lamb of God who was crucified on the cross and the blood that came out there. So we would remember. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Give out the elements of the communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, to remember that, to have a solemn time of the body and the blood of Christ. It's all for memory. So getting back to scripture memory, if we can just drill this kind of stuff into our head, and I'm not trying to burden you, I'm saying five minutes a day. So here's the basic principle with Bible memory. You repeat it to get it, and you review it to keep it. Okay? So let's say Mia here's got her favorite chapter is Romans chapter 8, and so she reads the first verse. Let's say your, your work duty is washing dishes in the kitchen and your particular work duty at, uh, when do you knock off? At 7 o'clock at night, basically? Well, if, if you're a kitchen worker washing dishes? 5 to 7. Okay, so let's say 7, you got to go to a, a ministry night or something like that. So you got to knock off at 7. So your job is to wrap up all the garbage barrels, all the garbage bags, and to take them out to the dumpster. Okay, that's your assignment. you got 15 minutes to do that every day. So you take five of those 15 minutes, and you say, Lord, help me. And you remember back to about eight hours before that, you had your quiet time, and you wrap up the garbage barrels, uh, bags, and you say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is therefore no, and you, you repeat it to get it. The next day, you got it. Then you go to verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's verse 2. You repeat it. You repeat it. You repeat it. You repeat it along with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Because the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Five minutes of your work duty that night, you do the garbage barrel thing, your mind, is, your mind would otherwise be floating around, thinking about the beach, thinking about whatever, and um, 
but this way you're disciplining yourself. You're, you're doing hardcore discipline for five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. So you can, you, you probably couldn't keep that kind of concentration for 15, 20 minutes, but five minutes you can. So if you can just discipline yourself five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, at one verse a day, you'll be, each day you reinforce verse one that much stronger. Then you reinforce, then it's, um, there is therefore now no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that was four verses. That would be 20 minutes Monday to Thursday in the morning and 20 minutes Monday to Thursday in the afternoon to reinforce what you did in the morning, it's not hard to see how you could have those four verses memorized in four days and have them pretty good because you forced yourself to drill it back into your memory, which is the same thing that circumcision did, that the Feast of Tabernacles did, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Purim, the the various feasts of the Jews, do this in remembrance of me. It's all that we tend to be forgetful people. See? And... um, let me tell you a true story. It's, it's kind of serious, but uh, I escaped. A, this was a long time ago. I guess I was a little more fleshly back then. But um, I was on my way to go preach at an outreach in New Orleans. Long story short, I got bumped off of a flight. Now, at this time, Daniel was probably six or seven years old, and David was about two years old. So it's a long time ago. And... Um, so I'm on my way to this outreach. Everything's fine at home. I'm fine with my wife, fine with my kids. Everything's cool. So I kind of got my guard down, and I go into this. I, I get bumped off the plane in Houston. I'm whacked on jet lag. I'm really tired. And I was going to be like a good YWAM and sleep in the airport, but I was so tired, and they were depending on me on this outreach the next day to be preaching for three or four hours I just felt like the Lord said, throw it on your credit card and get a good night's sleep in a hotel. And it wasn't my fault that I got bumped off the plane. It was, a, it was kind of a um, mix-up. So I went up to this airport hotel right across the street from the airport. I went up to the counter. I put my credit card down. I said, I just need a room. Give me a cheap room. I, just, I need about six hours of sleep. And so she said, okay. So she, put, she says, well, it's in the gold tower. And so we make a left over here and a right down there and then catty corner there. And then it'd be, and I... I half, wasn't even half listening to what she said. I, I'll find it. So I, I got over into the hotel, and I got confused because there was a couple of different towers, and I was, I was jet-lagged and everything. And so I'm walking by a bar. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm in a town where I don't know anybody. Nobody knows me. And I'm out there on my own. And I walked into the... I walked into the um, to the bar, and I figured the bartender would tell me where this gold tower was. I said, I didn't know where this gold tower is. And uh, he says, oh, yeah, you go down there, and then you go diagonal up there. And I said, okay, okay. So I went to go out, and as I'm walking out the door, a very attractive younger girl. Now, of course, I was only in my 20s at the time. This girl came over, and we kind of bumped into each other, and she looks at me, she goes, and she's about half drunk. You know what I mean by... If somebody's sloppy drunk, they're kind of very unattractive. But, but she was just drunk enough to be flirty and to be very nice and very complimentary. And she was by herself. 
So she comes out of the bar. I literally bump into her. I said, oh, I'm sorry. She goes, oh, you have such blue eyes. What I should have said was, my wife really likes my blue eyes, you know, or something like that. But I didn't. I said, oh, thank you. Maybe something psychologically, subconsciously back there kind of dug a young, pretty girl thinking I had nice blue eyes. So um, I say, and I'm, I'm totally innocent. I'm, I got no sinful motives in mind. I'm totally innocent. And I say, you know where this gold tower is? Oh, come follow me. I'm in the gold tower. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii. And then she kind of stumbled into me in a little physical touch, a little contact. And, and I can see there's something going on here. And um, we actually get to the elevator, and she's going up the same elevator I'm in. So we get in the elevator, and she's just about to get off the elevator, and she says, hey. She puts her hand on my chest, and she says, I'm in room 315. And she batted her eyes at me, and that's when it really hit me. Ba-woom. This is, a, this is an actual temptation here. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm almost in a cold sweat, and I had tracks in my pocket. I didn't give her a track. And I'm, I'm sitting in this situation. And I got wacko thoughts going through my head. That's what a temptation is, right? It's actually a temptation. It's not a temptation if you're not tempted, amen? (laughs) So all I'm doing is confessing it. I'm not confessing a sin, I'm confessing a temptation. But I'm telling you, it was really a temptation. Pretty girl, out in the middle of nowhere. You can get away with this, Danny. You would have given a million bucks for this when you were in the world. Man, this is great. This is all, all, you you just need to quit. And I'm, I'm thinking, in my mind, it was almost, how many of you have ever been in a situation of temptation that you thought you were going crazy. These thoughts in your mind, and you're thinking, I shouldn't be thinking this kind of a thought. I'm a man of God. My goodness, I preach on holiness and all that, and and I'm happily married, and everything's cool, but I got these temptations going through my mind. And I get up to the sixth floor, and I go into my room, and I have a little voice say to me, why don't you go down to her room and give her a tract? And I felt like that was the voice of the enemy. Because I, I, was, I was vulnerable at this point because I was, I was tempted. And then my scripture memory kicked in. It was like, I went, man, I need some help. So I got down on my knees. As soon as I got on my knees, the Holy Spirit said, call your wife. Establish a contact with reality here. You're in a fantasy world. So I, I called my wife up. And I said, hey, honey, I just want to let you know I'm in Houston. I got bumped off the flight. I'm in a hotel, but I'll be in New Orleans tomorrow. I'll give you a call tomorrow. Kiss the kids goodnight for me. And I established a contact with reality, got back down on my knees, and the Holy Spirit went, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will give you a way of escape so that you will be able to handle it. Then another verse came into my mind, Hebrews 4, 16. Uh, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I said, Lord, I'm in a time of need, and I need your grace right now to help me right now. And, uh, and then the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, just go to bed. It's over, but don't go out of that room. And I lived to be able to tell about it. I can tell you hairy stories about friends of mine that have not been able. But I think one of the reasons I was able to withstand a temptation is the same way Jesus withstood his temptation in the wilderness, which was what? Scripture previously memorized scripture. Amen? Jesus had memorized those verses in Deuteronomy as a boy, or maybe even as a rabbi. But when the devil said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, take you up into this mountain, and, you know, and then Jesus come back with us, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written. 
And Jesus actually said it to the devil. It is written, devil. This is not just something I'm cooking up here. It is written, and it's the word of God, and it's your defeat. As Martin Luther said, one little word will knock him down. And so we need to be able to use Scripture in a practical way to be able to help us. So start out verse by verse and just do this. This is a money-back guarantee. Take your favorite chapter. It might be, it might be First Kings. I'm, I'm, the reason I'm discouraging you, that's more of a, of a, more of a um, narrative, and so it's that much more harder to memorize. In my experience, the letters of Paul are the easiest ones to memorize, or the letters. The first chapter that I memorized was 1 Peter. And the reason was because I was teaching on 1 Peter, and I was studying 1 Peter, and that the... the um, the theme of 1 Peter, the main point of 1 Peter is victory through suffering. And so I went in the very beginning, and it was, was a tough one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered abroad throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It took me like two days to get that one down because that was a tough one. And then, um, and then it went on to the next verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living. And so I went then, and I did it one at a time, roughly five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, and I just got into a pattern. Then, and, and this is what you want to do with disciplines. You want to look for what we call the rhythms of your life that you happen to be in right now. So I was at a, at a certain rhythm where when I was in town... My wife had and I had a deal. I would take the kids to school in the morning, and she would pick them up in the afternoon. So what we would do is I'd get the boys in, and I would use that for father-son time. It took about 20 minutes to get to the school where they lived, where they were, uh, went to school. I dropped them off, had father-son time on the way, and on the way back, I would be listening to the oldies channel or the sports channel or something. Then the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, why don't you redeem this time? This is something you can... It, it's something, it's in the rhythm of your life. You're taking your kids to school every day. It's something you're doing regularly. So I turned off the radio, and I started repeating the scripture that I had memorized in my quiet time before I took the boys to school. So I remember I memorized the whole book of Romans. It took me two and a half years, but I memorized the whole book of Romans uh, by taking advantage of the rhythm that God had me in in that season. Now, I don't do that now. I don't take my kids to school now. So now I have to find a different rhythm. Just living in Kona shocked my whole world because it's totally different than living in Honolulu. In Kona, we have a big YWAM base in a little town. In Honolulu, I had a big town with a small YWAM base. And, and that wrecks up your rhythm. So your rhythms are um, your sleep habits, your sleep patterns, uh, your time of getting up in the morning, are you, a, are you a morning lark or are you a night owl? Some of us, especially musicians, tend to be night owls. They stay up late at night. A lot of them are doing gigs and concerts till late at night. A lot of them have breakfast at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, because of their, their rhythms of their situation. Now, worship's a little different than that. But if you do, if this ends up being a 24-7 prayer thing here, There'll be some of you that might be leading worship at 3 to 5 in the morning. You never know. And so you'll have to adjust your rhythms to that. So what I would say is look at the rhythms of your life. Like right now, 
what I'm giving you might be a little tough because I know you got a full schedule. You got a lot of stuff, you got books to read. But even in that, can you get five minutes to just build yourself up in the faith to memorize your favorite chapter of the Bible? Even if it's Psalm 1, Psalm 1 has six verses. Give yourself a couple of weeks. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to even do it the way I'm saying it. Just do it in a way where you can get that under your belt. I got a whole chapter of the Bible. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted. By. And you just memorize Psalm 1. You get those six verses down and say, I think I can memorize Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul, blah, blah, blah. Two chapters under my belt. Then you might go for, how about 1 Corinthians 13? A little bit more of a challenge, but it's only 13 verses. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and if I have not love, and got those 13. Now you got three chapters under your belt. And you just keep rolling, and the, the victory, it, it's, this is partially spiritual, partially psychological, to, to um, psychologically get a victory when you've never memorized a chapter before and you got a chapter done. Like I remember First Peter, my first book, has 25 verses, and it took me about a month to memorize those 25 verses. But once I got that first chapter down, I went, you know what? I think I can do this whole book. And then I went into chapter 2, which has 24 verses. Did that in another month. And then I had two chapters. I was on a roll now. Now I've only got three more chapters to do, and I can memorize the whole book of First Peter. And when I got done, I came to the realization, you know what? I know 1 Peter better than Peter did. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Because all Peter did was write a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then he went on, and history shows us that he died shortly after that. And so he was martyred, but he just wrote a letter. Like, I know Philippians better than Paul. <laughs> now, I don't know what he meant by everything. That's still up to interpretation, but I know the words. And it's the words that give life. So if you memorize scripture, this will help you in your worship leading. It'll help you in your relationship with pastors because pastors love biblically grounded worship leaders. Uh, it'll help you in your temptation against the enemy. It'll help you in your basic joy. What did, what did Jeremiah say? Beautiful verse. He says, I found your words and I ate them and they became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, and lots of other verses uh, about the joy of the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy and so forth. That's beautiful. See, now that's something, I couldn't do that because I don't know sign language, but 
That's something that you, God gave you. So you use anything you can. Yesterday, I had to get into my storage locker because I'm moving my furniture. And I went up to the lock and I went, forgot the, forgot the combination. But then I remembered. I had used a memory device, a device called mem uh, basic association, where you associate one thing with another. And when I was a little kid, I used to memorize football players' numbers. And so what I did is I had 22, 33, 23. And I remembered three. One, one was uh, uh, 33 was Tony Lorick. 22 was Emmett Smith. And uh, 33, uh, 32 was uh, Ricky Waters. And those were three uh, football players that I recognized that as soon as I said the number, I would think of them. If I think of Joe 16, I think of Joe Montana. So I do that with my, with, my, um, with my various passwords. I'll use numbers. Like, like one of my passwords is 1615. Where did I get that? That's a great commission out of Mark 1615. So these are, these are things you can use, but you've got you to look into your own heart. And you don't, these are just things I do. I would just encourage you to do similar things as well. Let me um, take just a few more minutes, and then we're going to knock off. But a um, couple little steps here, all starting with the letter P. <coughs> to build a life of discipline, and the disciplines could be, I'd encourage you to get a copy before you hit the wall. I deal with all the disciplines there. The disciplines of fasting, scripture memory, meditation, Bible reading, Bible uh, listening to teachings and so forth, learning how to pay attention in church. That's a big one where we just we go to church. We totally forget what the pastor was talking about. But what you want to end up with is a life of practices, a life of spiritual practices, what we might call habits of the heart. What are you regularly doing on a regular basis? Uh, I can honestly say I've only gone to bed maybe three or four times since I was eight years old where I didn't brush my teeth. I brush my teeth before I go to bed every single night. A couple times I was just too tired and I just for, you know, forgot it. But it was because my mom drilled it into me. Brush your teeth, Daddy. Brush your teeth. And I did it enough, and I did it enough, and I did it enough. Whereas now I can be really, really tired, and I, I just make myself go do it. You build these habits. You build these spiritual disciplines. But you're not going to be able to do it just because Danny says spiritual disciplines are good. You have to be convinced from God that God is leading you into those spiritual disciplines. What I do every January is coming up again in about six weeks. I'm setting aside one day. I call it a fast and focus day. I break my life up into ten categories. My walk with God, my walk with other people, my physical health, my family, my ministry, my leadership, my evangelism, my pioneering involved in YWAM and missionary work, my products that I give away. And I, 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 the reason I can be so generous with you with all my books and everything is because other people have been generous with me, but a lot of it was because I prayed about it. And I prayed and said, God, would you prosper me with my book so I can give them away to four YWAMers? And then when I go to Crossroads next week, I'll hit some rich YWAMers, and hopefully they'll bankroll what you guys didn't give. 
And that's okay. Why am I able to do that? Because I prayed about it. I put it in a category, and I fasted about it in the beginning of the year, and then I would pray regularly about that. And the last area would be my financial stewardship of my personal finances, my vehicles, my possessions. And so I broke my life up into all 12 of those areas, 10 of those areas, and ended up with those 10 areas, and I had that memorized. So I pray about that on a regular basis. Then I set actual, hang on to this, aim. Ready? Aim, fire. A-I-M. Attainable, intentional, measurable goals. Now, there are people who will poo-poo goals and say, just be led by the Spirit and do it. I'm saying the Spirit will lead you to set goals. And the Spirit will lead you to, like the Bible says, on the first day of the week when they came together to break bread. That was a goal. The goal was set. It was in stone. Every Sabbath day, they got together and took the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's a goal. Keep the Sabbath day. That's a goal that you keep once a week. Encourage one another every day. That's a visible, attainable, intentional, measurable goal. Either I encourage somebody every day or I don't. You got a time limit. You have an attainable thing. So make it more specific and do those goals. So here's the the general breakdown. You have certain principles that you want to live by. I'll give you the punchline on that. Your principles are love God and love your neighbors yourself. Those are the principles you live by. As a result of your principles, you make certain long-term projections. A long-term projection would be something like reading the whole Bible in a year. In order to reach that long-range projection of reading the whole Bible in a year, you have to make short-term plans. It takes you 20 minutes a day to read the whole Bible once a day. So 20 minutes a day, you break that up into bite-sized chunks. 20 minutes a day, four chapters a day, you'll have the whole Bible done in a year. So that's a plan. So you have to make a plan to get up every day 20 minutes early so you can do your Bible reading. In order to get up, 20 minutes early, you have to set certain priorities. We're not talking about sin here. We're talking about, now this wouldn't apply to you because you don't have a television, but a lot of Americans stay up late at night to watch late night television. They watch late night comedians. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if all you have is 20 minutes in the morning that you're either going to be sleeping or reading the Bible, go to bed 20 minutes earlier in the night, and put the priority of memorizing the Bible or reading the Bible over the priority of watching television. There's nothing wrong with watching television, but that's where you got to set your priorities straight. Everybody has to have priorities. And your priorities are based upon your short-term plans, which are based upon your long-range projections, which are based upon your principles, which is to love God and love your neighbor. One of the ways to love God is to know His Word, so you set a goal to read the Bible every day, So you have to set certain priorities to do that, and that will become your practice of reading the Bible for 20 minutes a day. Is that legalistic? It's not legalistic if the Holy Spirit teaches you to do it. So take your time. In my, with me, it's January, somewhere between the 4th and the 6th. I will take a day off, and I will go up to Halualoa and sit in the woods, or I'll go somewhere, and I'll be by myself with just a bottle of water, my prayer diary, and my both my prayer diaries from this year and next year, and then I'll have my Bible, and that's it. And I'll set certain goals for this year, and then I'll evaluate my goals from last year. 
and I'm pretty rough on myself sometimes, and, and sometimes I get legalistic, and sometimes I bite off more than I can chew, and sometimes I set unrealistic goals. But it's better to set unrealistic goals than to set no goals at all. So you be led by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be obsessive-compulsive about it. Just get relaxed, sit down with a bottle of water, take a couple of hours, let your spirit settle down, and say, Lord, what do you have for me this year? And he might say, go to an SBS. Where am I going to get the money for that? That's why you pray about your personal finances. You know, it's, it's all logical. It's just that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We don't like that verse because we want to say, I love you, Jesus. But Jesus would say, well, how come you're not keeping my commandments? Of course. Good distinction, because it's not, it's not that we love Jesus by keeping his commandments. That's legalism. I'm really going to prove to you I love you. by No, it's that because I love you and because you love me, like Johnny said last night, how can we not love him if he first loved us? First John, we love him because he first loved us. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm done. Um, yeah, I don't know how to close this out except amen. Uh, been fine being with you fine folks and thanks for having me thank you so much that was awesome who's excited about everything that he just said about like the bible memorization i'm really excited um y'all have roommates and stuff who's who wants to actually make a commitment to like try to memorize a bible verse this week just like a verse or a passage, whatever. I want to do it. Like, just hearing him talk about it gets me excited. It's good to just remember it in your heart. You can make a song about it. I don't know. I've memorized a lot of Bible verses by, like, listening to John Thurlow because a lot of his songs are just, like, Bible verses with pianos, and it's just it's so nice. So, yeah, you can make it easy. You have roommates. You guys can, like, help each other out and ask, like, hey, are you memorizing a Bible verse? So <laughs> accountability, stuff like that. Yeah, um, Danny, we would love to just come up and pray for you. Is there anything specific you would like us to be praying for? Yeah, yeah, what did you learn this week? Yeah.